This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, to episode seven of Through the Years, the podcast where two whack MCs review Ring of Honor shows chronologically from the beginning. Whack MC number one is me, Trevor Dame, and as always, I am joined by truly the wackest of MCs, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, how you doing? Well, I am whack. I, I, I've been called that many times, so I think that uh, this one I can't argue with. Um, but my initials are MF, right? Not MC. <laughs> um, I'm doing all right. Uh, uh, we're kind of, this is a longer than usual uh, hiatus for us. Um, you know, we're extremely busy people. Uh, I, for one, um, had to sleep several times uh, during the regular uh, hours of, the, of daylight uh, instead of uh, doing any watching of TV or recording. So uh, that's why it took me so long. I don't know about you. Sometimes I had to go to bed and sometimes I had to go to breakfast, but I could not afford to do those things in a professional facility devoted to them. So that made me have to wait a little longer to get everything ready. Yeah, and I'm, sometimes you're busy eating snacks. I don't know. What can you do? And also by Wack MCs, I'm of course talking now about rap, but we're masters of ceremonies. I think if you have a ceremony, you want us to be there. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm ready for uh, your uh, your nephew's confirmation. If you wanted us to join you there, I'm ready. I can handle anything from baptisms to brisses. So if you go have a bake sale, that's just a little bit out of my jurisdiction. You should see this guy perform a bris. Oh, it is, it is something special. It's you know you need a deft touch and a little bit of humor, but I get the job done. Boy, this is the this is the witty banter that the people come to listen to. <laughs> yes, this is. They don't even want us to get to the review. But don't, don't, actually, don't quit our day jobs or this thing that we do for free because I don't think this uh, this witty banter thing is working out for us too well. But Matt, you know, the great thing about the, the podcast network we're on, the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, is if you feel like we just flushed the entire goodwill we've built up with this show down the toilet, there are plenty of other good podcasts on the Place to Be Network that we are on. You just have to keep scrolling in the feed. You'll see great shows after us, great shows before us, and every episode I like to recommend uh, podcast you on the network that you might not have checked out yet. And so this episode, I'm going to recommend one of the earliest Place to Be Nation podcasts, which is Titans of Wrestling. And they're devoted, they, well, they recently ended their run not too long ago, but they have a ton of episodes you can go back to listen to. A group of young gentlemen, maybe not whack MCs, but still worthy of your time. They would review um, classic kind of pre-Hulkamania era, mostly WWF. And the specific episode I would recommend would be actually a best-of compilation they put out, the Best of Titans of Wrestling number 2, which was their compilation of all their segments talking about the famous Bruno Sammartino versus Larry, I mean, uh, Larry Zbysko feud, which I think it's a great way to catch up on that feud, which was kind of a legendary feud before a lot of our time and i think just the joy that that they have talking about in particular the promos that started the feud i think the very first half an hour of that podcast it's just infectious how much 
how much they like it, I don't think there's many podcasts where you have fun just hearing how much fun they're having talking about a fun segment they watched. Certainly not this one. No, I mean, this is a very bitter... This is this is basically community service that we're doing. You know, there's no other podcast about Ring of Honor from the beginning, so you kind of have to listen to us, and we have to do it. There's no joy involved. You have no choice. Yeah, I mean, if you want to listen to the uh, to people talk about Ring of Honor from the beginning and not read about it, I mean, the door's locked. This is it. No choice, and that's kind of how I live most of my life. Just, you're just looking to find people that really are obligated in some way or another to be around you. That's sort of how I feel, too. Yeah, I can't be the best at anything, so it has to be... I have to create things that people need that only I can supply. Exactly. So, right. thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that on a podcast level. Mm-hmm. And this week, we will... I mean, not this week, this episode, because it's sure as heck not weekly. Thank God. Um... I also just want to admit, we like doing the show. I mean, this may come off as bad. We like doing the show. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, uh, we chose to do it. You know, we're, we're, we, we dug our own graves a little bit. So we have to pretend that we like it, right? I moved this table, Matt, just so I could talk to you. That's how much I like doing this. But one other thing we'll see in a minute, if we liked doing or not, is watching the subject of our seventh episode, which is Ring of Honor's Unscripted, which took place on September 21st, 2002, from the Murphy Rec Center in Philadelphia, their usual home. And before we get into the show, there was a couple little notes I saw before the show. I saw my research. The first is, um, I like this little note from Dave in The Observer at the time. He wrote, Booker Gabe Sapolsky of Ring of Honor remarked that he was unhappy about the company's first TV that aired this week. I'm only saying that because that's like an historic first of someone saying that. There is frustration because of how difficult it is to sell tickets to Philadelphia shows because of how many promotions are running there. They have an October 5th show going head-to-head with XPW a few blocks away. So that's the first little note where we talked about this a couple episodes ago, where Ring of Honor was getting a show on local Philly TV, where they would be mostly airing just clips of matches from earlier shows and trying to promote future shows. And this, the whole story of this is it wouldn't last too long, and, but we're at the point in Ring of Honor history where the first shows are airing and they're starting to get disappointed that they're not seeing an obvious tick up in ticket sales. They're not, eventually they would realize they're also not seeing an obvious tick up in, in videotape sales. So I, I, I like that Dave just was shocked that that's the first time ever anyone had ever publicly admitted, you know, I don't like how our TV went. Yeah. Does it, does it give reasons like why he didn't like it? Was it just that it wasn't effective in selling, uh, tickets, or was it just like did he have a specific specific creative issue with it, or did they not say? Just because I'm thinking like they had two months or three months from the announcement of the um, of the TV to the airing of it, and you'd think that the Booker would have a lot of control over what went into it. And I, w- I they didn't give a specific reason, and I'll also note that this I believe was a show that aired. At midnight on a weeknight, so it's not exactly a prime time slot, and I think the ch- the local Philly channel that was doing this, they were giving that midnight weekday slot to a few promotions. I think CZW and NW Wildside had similar 
slots on the channel. So, I mean, maybe a little bit, I would guess the generous word is hopeful to expect that a midnight time slot on a channel that already was serving a lot of indie wrestling content would necessarily lead to a noticeable bump. And again, they weren't producing much original content for this. This was mostly just highlights from previous Ring of Honor shows and maybe a few original promos taped for the show to hype up upcoming events. Yeah, I mean, the show did suck, let's be honest. <laughs> I don't know how much I don't know if you've ever seen an episode of it, but I have and it wasn't any good. I've seen just clips of it and I've seen um the match listings on tape trading sites, but yeah, it just seemed like you know, they did they didn't go full bore with it. Right. It was it was it was a promotional tool that did not give them the promotion they wanted. Exactly. So, the other thing to note on the show is why it's called unscripted, which is a bunch of the card had to be shuffled around because Spanky and Steve Carino had to stay in zero one a little longer in Japan because their tour was extended by a few days. And Ring of Honor, interestingly enough, actually advertised to make up for this change. They announced before the show that you could come to this show unscripted and watch the first two matches. And if you'd like to leave, you could get a, fr- a refund, complete, no questions asked. You really can't ask for more stand-up sort of thing than that. I mean, except the fact that if you're going to head all the way out there, because most people aren't, don't live right nearby, if you're going to head all the way out there, you're probably... They took a gamble that you're almost definitely not going to ask for a refund after two matches. You're going to just be like, all right, what the hell, I'm already here. Yeah, I would definitely say it's kind of... And they're not the only people that have ever done this, but that's kind of a shrewd move where if you're already making all all these plans on a Friday or Saturday night and coming to an arena, maybe from close, even if it's from close, at some point when you're in, it's the middle of, you know, it's 8.30 or whenever, even if the show's only going average, are you really going to go ask for a refund? I, I get, mean, probably I, not. Yeah, I guess the real, like, real stand-up thing to do is just to automatically mail everyone a refund. But they do have to run a business. I don't know. I don't necessarily think that's a reasonable expectation, uh, especially when you know Spanky and Steve Carino. They're not like the main draws in ROH. It's not like Loki and Christopher Daniels and American Dragon were all not there. Mm-hmm. And Steve Carino was scheduled to wrestle American Dragon. Spanky was going to be part of the tag title tournament, teaming with Paul London. So obviously that uh, gets us kind of to the start of the show. Although actually, looking at my notes have one more news bit the show drew 400 which was down a little bit but that would be probably due to competing promotion 3pw running directly against them just apparently a few blocks down the street in the ecw arena they also drew around 400 but they had a very different kind of card they had x-pac or six pac i guess he was billed as versus sabu and abdullah the butcher versus kevin sullivan so it's kind of interesting that they went, you know, the big former name route, drew about the same, booked a much bigger, well, a somewhat bigger building in the ECW arena. And excuses, excuses. 3PW being the cause of ROH's attendance decline. <laughs> well, this would be a theme that will continue the 3PW, XPW, CZW, ROH kind of four way philly war that's what and they get. that's what they get for not ending uh their uh their promotions uh, initials in with a word that starts with w most likely <laughs> wrestling <laughs> so we start the show uh ring of honor unscripted and we start it differently than most shows because we get 
Stephen DeAngelis, the ring announcer, in the ring with Paul London, and we cut to it. They're almost mid-sentence, so it's a very abrupt start, and none of the backstage backstage segments that we get with most of these shows. And they're telling the audience, they're reminding the audience that uh, Spanky can't be there tonight. That was going to be Paul London's partner. And London says it's actually a blessing disguise because he has a new partner and he announces it's American Dragon. And American Dragon comes out, gets a big pop. Michael Shane follows out almost immediately. He gets in Paul's face. He tells Paul that he should have picked Shane. He generally rubs it in Paul's face that he's beaten him multiple times in Ring of Honor. He slaps Paul London and this causes Paul to fire back. He fights back, sends Shane to the floor, and then he does an insane shooting star press to the floor in full street clothes, including denim jeans and shoes, and in really bad placement. They, For some strange reason, they had a bunch of extra chairs set up at ringside, like on the other side of the rail that separated the crowd from the ring, and they almost crashed right into the chairs. Like, they, the bump was right beside them. They might have even hit the chairs. It just looked... Just the usual dangerous Paul London thing that seems to happen on every show. Crowd goes absolutely ballistic for this. They, they're big fans of London. They're big fans of shooting star presses in jeans. London gets back on the mic. He apologizes, apologizes to American Dragon... Says yes, he he's going to have to pull out of the tag title tournament because he wants to kick Michael Shane's ass in a street fight tonight. He then pulls out a giant, super tall ladder from under the ring to show the crowd what he'll be using. He, London and Shane leave, and this prompts G- Stephen DeAngelis to ask American Dragon if he has a partner for the tournament. Dragon says he thinks he has an idea. And that ends the segment. I think one interesting thing is... I didn't really think about this when I was first watching it, but in light of that little news note I gave earlier, I also wonder if they kind of did the segment this way, knowing that they had made the promise that if you don't like the first two matches, you can get a full refund. This way, you know, they're doing something a little bit different where not only do they have to kind of address what's going to happen because they're shaking up the card, but they're giving you a reason where even if you didn't like the first two matches... There's a big street fight. There's American Dragon's going to have a mystery partner. They're giving you some hooks to kind of stick around no matter what. It's like the beginning of an episode of Raw, basically. They do the the big match promo to set up the main event or whatever later. Um, and I, I think it, it works when you have a situation like that where a big match uh, is, uh, is off the show. And... Um, yeah, London not only did a shooting star press in jeans, but they were in really baggy 90s jeans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, this was only a few years removed from the 90s, so I guess it makes sense. But yeah, I wrote the same thing you did with the shooting star press. Just completely insane. He um, yeah, he was really... Uh, th- this guy was really, like, um, caution to the wind in these early ROH shows. He just really was out to make a name for himself. And he did. He was very successful. Um, I, uh, I thought uh, the, the Shane's promo was kind of entertaining. His whole logic was, I kick your ass all the time, so you should have picked me, because if you can't beat them, you should join them. Which is interesting, although you'd think that since Shane is you know, such a dick to London, he would not want to be his partner. But uh, I guess they had to come up with some contrivance for why Shane would interrupt him. And... Uh, 
it was worth it for setting up that match. It was also kind of funny that DeAngelis went to Dragon right away and was like, "Do you have a partner?" And he was like, "Well, I didn't even he I mean, he didn't even know if he was going to have a partner when he got there in the first place. So you, it would be funny if he already had a backup one, but I guess he did." <laughs> yeah, and like you said, I actually wrote in my notes the exact thing you wrote, which was this was very much a raw opening, but I think it actually worked because Ring of Honor didn't do this all the time. Right, I think exactly. if they did, it would seem weird, but because it was, you know, something that would very rarely happen from them, it actually made it feel fresh and different. And that kind of unscripted vibe, I guess, Gabe kept pushing throughout the show. Anytime something a little bit out of the ordinary happened, Gabe would try to uh, push that was unscripted. And actually, before you say what you were going to say, I had to just catch myself because talking about what Gabe is saying, that's because this is the very first show with Ring of Honor's new announced team replacing Steve Carino and Donnie B, Big 80's Donnie B. And this is Gabe Sapolsky, the booker of Ring of Honor, and Doug Gentry, who was also one of the higher-ups at Ring of Honor. But they were as... They used fake names for some reason. I guess they didn't want to just admit that they were employees. So they were Chris Lovey and Ray Morrow, I think, were the names. Yep, uh, Chris Lovey, Ray Morrow, and um, boy, what... What an epic moment, the debut of these two. I mean, it really changed the entire feel of the show to not have Steve Carino and Donnie B on commentary. You know, whatever you say about these new announcers, and I'm sure we'll say a lot, um, it just, it really changed everything. It's like, you know, in a lot of ways it felt like the same promotion, but in a lot of ways it felt totally different just based on the commentary alone. Yeah, and I would say there was negatives and positives, but... I never found myself distracted from the matches because of their commentary, which I can't say for ma- certain matches on every other Ring of Honor release so far. Even when they are doing flaws, they're not flaws where all of a sudden you have to rewind because your mind just goes into a fog, you know, because you go, did they just say that? What, what are they even talking about? And I would say for guys that probably have next to none or maybe no pro wrestling commentary experience, it's not a horrible first outing for them. Yeah, I would say that as well. I, um, it's not a horrible first outing for them. Yes, that, that, yeah. that's the best way to put it. And they would, they would get lots of time to grow as Gabe in particular would be doing a lot of Ring of Honor announcing for years now from this point. And Gentry would as well. He wouldn't do as much. There would be over the next couple of years, we'll see a few people kind of wrote rotate in to stand beside or sit beside Gabe, but this would be, he would get more than a couple shows as well. So we'll see how they progress through the years. Yeah. And, um, uh, I'd say the biggest issue that will remain for the entire time that Chris Lovey slash Gabe, uh, is on commentary is since he's the booker, a lot of his commentary is just a little too on the nose where he'll be like, this is my booking idea, so I'm just going to hammer it home in the most direct and aggressive way possible. Uh, uh, he never really gets better about that. Yeah. you, Gabe, I mean, I always find, one of the things I always find interesting is when a booker is a commentator for his own product, because you can read so much into some things, but 
as you just said, I do think Gabe sometimes almost wanted the as the announcer, he almost set up things too well sometimes where he'd be like, boy, I mean, I think we'll get to it later, but there's some match where he goes, after these two guys had a match, he, he says, boy, these guys would look great as a tag team. You know, I'd love to see them as a tag team. And surprise, surprise, a show or two later, they're a tag team, which, you know, it's Gabe the Booker setting up a match, knowing what's going to happen in his plans. But it also, if an announcer has too many of those moments, it kind of ruins the suspension of disbelief that you're supposed to have, especially when he's already going out of his way to try and create that barrier because he's not even using Gabe Sapolsky as a name. He's Chris Lovey. Yeah, which I guess is like that's the kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing with the fake names. Yeah. So at this point, we get our standard pointless music video showing all the entrances we'll see later, except... This time for once, it's not generic techno, it's generic hard rock. That's right, I said the same thing, yeah. Hard and rock music. The weird thing at the end of the, the one quibble weird thing I'll have at the end of this is they're showing a few highlights from tonight's show, and they show the freaking Paul London ladder walk spot that the, will happen later in the night. Like The biggest they spoil- spot of the entire show, and they give it away immediately to people that have already purchased the uh, the DVD. Exactly. I was stunned when they did this. I, I, anyone that watched this, you know, you had this was a you had to buy the VHS. I don't get why you would spoil the moment when people were going to watch the match anyway in a couple of hours. I don't get why they did this. It's a bad decision that nobody seemed to have a problem with. <laughs> and. A uh, somewhat better decision, my segues are on point tonight, was the first match in tonight's one-night Ring of Honor tag title tournament, and that would be the SAT of Jose and Joel Maximo versus the Prophecy of Christopher Daniels and Donovan Morgan, was scored to the ring by Simply Luscious. Christopher Daniels and Donovan Morgan beat the SAT in 7 minutes, 21 seconds, when Morgan pinned Jose after the Sayonara, which was kind of a sit-out pedigree. It was one of his regular finishers. Matt, what did you think about this match? Uh, I thought it was... um, It kind of uh, ended well. Like I thought the last 90 minutes were good. Um, You know, you went to the... um, the Spanish fly, Morgan pulled uh, Jose off, Joel hit the single, and then Morgan hit the, uh, the pedigree. Um, but the SAT, I thought, looked pretty sloppy here. Um, you know, it's just like, you know, when, you, when the SAT would be up against guys who you would consider more um, polished wrestlers, I guess, it really stood out how not polished they were. Um, like I said, it ended well, but there really wasn't... Um, there really wasn't much of a, a story to it, I guess. You know, they, they I guess the story through the night was this was the first time that the prophecy had teamed together, and um, and like they were already kind of a well-oiled machine. And I guess the other storyline is that um, somebody uh, from the crowd debuted and took out simply luscious. Yes. Uh, development in this match is 
before the match, it, uh, the prophecy kind of get into it with a woman at ringside, and it's kind of sold as just a fan. Later, halfway through the match, Daniels goes to the outside, and if I remember correctly, he, after yelling at her for a little bit, he shoves her. So I'm going to count this as seven for seven on Ring of Honor shows with man-on-woman violence, because they were just yelling at each other, and he shoved her. And, and, there's, a little, she, and there's a little bit more of that later. Yes, and this one would turn out to be Trinity, who would, uh, and she comes in during this match and hits a big moonsault to the floor. Carrie simply lushes away, and she disappears until a backstage segment at the end of the sh- at the end of the show. Simply lushes. So I don't know if she took her to that dumpster where Steve Carino and Simply Luscious made out on a couple shows ago, but it's a weird kind of random way to in to introduce a woman into the company oh. i think they mentioned that she's maybe friends with i think on the ring of honor website i was looking at uh, the web archive of it they said that she's friends with chris divine i maybe even dating him at the time and that since chris divine and quiet storm are friends with the maximo she was having their back like there was some weird justification online they tried to make for this you know it's interesting how roh sort of had parallel continuities i might have mentioned this before but you get the continuity that you get if you followed their website and their news wires and all that stuff where there's like and then if you just watch the dvd it sort of follows a different continuity because they kind of retroactively change things in post-production. So there's things that you would not know were part of the booking if you would just watched the DVD. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an example of that. Like, they mention nothing about who she is in the, uh, in the DVD. And it's just, you know, she's there and she shows up and she does something. It, it, it's definitely interesting because reading um, Gabe's newswires and kind of the two or three paragraph justifications he would make for matches sometimes they would not give you that entire justification on commentary so as you said sometimes the build would be better if you were reading the ring of honor website which is a strange strange circumstance i don't know if any promotion quite had it like that yeah well i guess maybe the idea is to build up an upcoming show, you needed like the storylines in place, whereas to promote a DVD, you just need to have word of mouth that the matches were good. Mm-hmm. Because even on these shows, I noticed on these early shows, they would have articles on the Ring of Honor website where in the recap after every match, they would also tell you what that meant going forward. So they were very much trying to give every match a a forward momentum, like everything, which I appreciated, even if it was a minor match, they wanted to be able to write some bullet points of, this is what this means. This, this has purpose. This is going to lead to something else. As for the match itself, I agree. I thought the Maximos were pretty sloppy here. I think Jose Maximo in particular had a real bad hot tag sequence that included a really ugly looking DDT and one of those classic, bumps where a guy tries to bump himself over the ropes and can't quite do it but i also thought they just looked sloppy in the middle in terms of a i mean in in general in terms of a story i don't know if there's much of a story you can tell in seven minutes 21 seconds daniels and morgan tried to work a traditional heel dynamic doing is is that a challenge do you want me to tell a story in seven minutes and 21 seconds because i'll I'll do it next on the next show i'll I'll write it get it all done 
okay, I mean, one-man show next week, mm -hmm. seven minutes, 21 seconds. Yeah. Next episode. I keep saying next week. I'm setting up a bad, false expectation. <laughs> but I thought overall this match was, uh, I'd say, high average. Like, it moved at a good clip. The sloppiness detracted a bit. But for seven minutes, I was entertained. One thing I thought was kind of funny was Gabe tries to do a real hard sell, both on the website and on commentary for this, after the match, where he said this match was proof that the SAT could beat the Prophecy in a rematch. And I'll note, they lost in 7 minutes, 21 <laughs> seconds, relatively pretty much clean, and I don't, you know, and this is, again, one of those first iterances of Knowing the future of Ring of Honor, knowing that Gabe's the booker, we'd know that in a few shows, Gabe, in fact, would book a rematch between these two teams. So he has a reason to sell it. But the match itself and what happened in the match doesn't sell what the words that are coming out of his mouth. Yes, okay. He's selling one, one thing verbally, but the results aren't. Oh, and can I just make an aside about the prophecy? I think the prophecy is kind of a stupid gimmick. I kind of always thought that because it's like you have Christopher Daniels, he's the fallen angel, and he's like, oh, the prophecy, it's true, the prophecy. And it's like like all this like sort of like semi-mystical stuff, but then it's mostly just a bunch of like jock bros like uh, Donovan Morgan and Xavier and BJ Whitmer, and the main, their main prophecy that is true is uh, shaking hands is stupid. Like it's, <laughs> it's just – there's like there's – it's just – there's, it's a mishmash of tones in a way that I think is kind of silly. It's it's a, it's a dumb name for a group that's just like yeah we don't we don't want to shake hands. And even simply luscious is almost dressed up more like a cheerleader. Like she doesn't yeah. fit with at least Allison Danger later when she would join. I feel like she did more work to change her look to kind of fit a more gothic vibe. Totally. I'll I'll note that um the prophecy was originally supposed to be called Genesis. That was Christopher Daniels' idea, like it was going to be the start of something. But Gabe, I think, nixed that because MLW's first show was called Genesis at the time, so he thought that would look bad. So I forget who came up with the prophecy, Gabe or Chris, but it was not actually even their first choice. It was their second or third. That makes more sense. The only other thing I'll bring up about this match is I thought the ending looked... Even though, I again, I think the match was high average, it was solid, I thought the end was kind of dumb where the SAT go to hit the Spanish fly on Christopher Daniels, Donovan Morgan shoves one of them off, the other, Maximo, does the one-man Spanish fly, which I think is the first time in Ring of Honor we just had the one-man version, and Morgan just stands there watching this entire thing like a goof until it's time to break up the two count, and then after that, he and Daniels hit a couple moves and it's over. So it was kind of a weird, not quite, not a great climactic finish. That's funny because I actually enjoyed the finish the, mo the most of any part of the match. I thought it was, uh, the crowd got really into it for the last couple of spots. Once the, once the SAT hit that doomsday DDT after, um, after Trinity uh, dragged Luscious away. Hmm. I think they also, it, it's interesting that, they really, I think, loved the one-man Spanish fly because at the time, the regular Spanish fly was a two-guys-on-one-guy two move. Where, and so the one-on-one one -one variation was a really special thing where in today's indie wrestling, it's completely different because you see a few guys do the one-man Spanish fly. I can't remember the last time I saw the two-on-one Spanish fly yeah. where it's the opposite where now if I saw that on a modern show – 
I would probably be more excited because it would just be different by today's yeah. landscape. Also, I think the two-man is a little more impressive. It's the coordination of the flip and stuff. Exactly. So that ends that match, and we go backstage to see Dick Togo and Okuro Hadaka, the Japan imports that are coming for a visit, and they're having a conversation with each other in Japanese, similarly having a great old time, when in walks the Christopher Street connection. You know, you got Mace, you got Buffy, you got Allison Danger, and you have the debuting Japanese pool boy, who was a tall, skinny man wearing a mask. He was an indie wrestler on other in other promotions. They, uh, one of the Christopher Street connection called Togo and Hadaka Chinese. Yeah, it said, who uh, ordered Chinese? So we got racism and homophobia all in one wonderful package. <laughs> it's funny how much respect Ring of Honor would have for Japanese wrestlers and how much they how much value they would ring out of them and special guest stars but yet this one th- this segment is out of a uh, 2002 raw the christopher street connection are yet again eating bananas um togo takes one and breaks it in half and toga and hadaka start reacting to the christopher street connection by talking to each other with the same kind of anger and disgust that you would hear an eric gargiulo and Steve Carino talk about the Christopher Street connection on the first show. So I guess maybe the point of this segment, Matt, was to show that deep down we're all alike. doesn't matter where you're from. <laughs> we're all homophobic and angry and horrible people. It's a feeling of unity. And by the way, since I am here to interpret metaphors, um, when Dick Togo ripped apart the banana, it was almost like he was breaking the Christopher Street Connection's penis. Yes, he he was questioning their manhood, Matt, through yeah. through fruit innuendo, and man, <laughs> um, <laughs> we should just end the show on that. I don't think there's a better closure than you just going man <laughs> and us shutting off. That's telling a story in I don't know twenty something minutes. Yeah, but the. At this point, the Japanese pool boy whispers and translates what Togo and Hadaka said to the Christopher Street connection. Apparently, it was naughty. It was scandalous. Um, They leave. Togo angrily throws the broken banana away. And welcome to the U.S., Dick Togo and Akuto Hadaka. I mean, you've already been there before, but I guess welcome to Ring of Honor. Yes. And we get another little backstage segment of James Maritato and Tony Mamaluke are warming up. The sound guy comes by and he asks them if they ask them, do they have their entrance music CD ready for him to play later that night? Mamaluke tries to give him the old FBI theme music on CD. Maritato tells him to give him something else. Doesn't want to be associated with the FBI. And as soon as James Maritato turns his back, Mamaluke makes sure he gets the FBI theme music. What a sneak. What a sneaky little devil. And that brings us to the second match, which is also the second match of the Ring of Honor Tag Title Tournament in the first round. Dick Togo and Akuto Hadaka take on and defeat James Maritano and Tony Mamaluke in 9 minutes 42 seconds when Togo pinned Mamaluke after a senton. Um, I was a little surprised to actually give this close to 10 minutes because... Ring of Honor at this time, especially in tournaments, 
was prone to doing a lot of very short matches, but they actually gave these guys a fair amount of time, you know, to tell a story. Ten minutes is solid. And I felt like this was a little disappointing. I didn't think it was bad by any means. The first stretch, they uh, they wrestled like what you would expect, which is they did a lot of mat work. Um, Mama Luke is still kind of disappointing me. He's not as good as my memory. He's not that he's terrible, but I find he does a little bit too much of holding guys in submissions and not really working with the submission, sometimes with his he- back to the hard camera. He, did, not he really- definitely got a standing O with um, when he and Togo did the mat stuff, though, early at the beginning. Like, the crowd really liked it, at least, at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was also surprised by how over Dick Togo was. I mean, the, the that first moment, I would say, he was where they give a big pop out of that sequence and they're really chanting for Togo. That was probably the second biggest reaction anyone had gotten on the card thus far, other than Paul London. And um, there's not... 10 minutes, there's not a ton to this match. I thought it was enjoyable, but still kind of middle of the road. Uh, I'm just trying to think. There's not much dissension. They do one dissension spot between the FBI where Mama Luke lands a cheap shot from the apron and Maritano gets mad, but they quickly get over it. Uh, I think Dick Togo, I think Hadaka and Togo both look great, but Dick Togo's one of those guys where Every little thing he does looks really polished. I feel like one thing you notice when you watch guys like Togo and Hadaka, or even some of the more veterans of Ring of Honor like Daniels and Morgan, is they there's a lot of wrestlers in Ring of Honor at this time point where they can do cool moves. And if they're even if they're a little sloppy, you're still impressed because it's a cool move. But these are guys you know you've note you can notice where. Even the simple moves have been practiced to a very polished level, where everything looks good. There's, there's all the rough edges are sanded away, which, in so, on a move by move level, seems like a little difference. But when you watch everyone in a company show by show, it really stands out. When some guys, where just simple moves like drop kicks and punches look, have a higher degree of polish and execution, where they're putting pride into every move, even if it's a simple move that's been done by a million wrestlers. And, Matt, what did you think? Um, I thought it was, like you said, it was pretty solid. Um, you know, I think, you know, like, so the crowd was really into Togo. I think Togo and Hidaka got a lot of um, the ECW rub. Just And, you know, Maritato obviously has that too, and Mama Luke to a lesser extent, but they had been in ROH, obviously, since the beginning. So T- Togo and Hidaka, like... For either the fans who saw them, either their last memories of them were they, if they're hardcore enough fans, getting Japanese tapes at the time from there, or just from the fact that they had made good impressions in ECW. So that kind of made them seem like more stars than the other guys. Um, there was a little bit of sloppiness. I don't know if you noticed uh, at the hot tag um, to Togo near the end. Like all four guys kind of struggled to get on the same page um, until Togo hit the, the spinning DDT on Mamaluke. Um, and, you know, the ending was decent, but um, I thought it was kind of disjointed. Like, it didn't, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of, like, heat segments and stuff. It was sort of like tag one guy, tag the other guy. Maybe some very short stuff that looked like it was going to be heat, but then it just, quick, another quick tag. So I thought that was the main issue with it. it but, I, you know, for a second match on a show, on an on a early ROH show, I've definitely, I've definitely seen worse. 
yeah. The, again, this was not bad by any means. I guess it was to me a little disappointing when I, I've, I like all four of these guys and they got 10 minutes. So I was hoping for something a little bit better than solid, but there's no harm in solid, especially compared to some other ring of honor undercard matches we've seen in the first shows. It's still, so, weird. it's still weird to me that like Maritato in particular, wasn't better in, uh, in ROH. Like, you know, he was really good in ECW near the end and, he just never impressed in ROH, and I don't know if he wasn't working as hard or, you know, I mean, I guess he didn't have a ton of great matches in WWE either, but you just think, as he was a little bit less restricted, that he would be able to be at least as good as his ECW self in ROH, and he never really reached that level. I did like his selling here. He did the flopping around like a fish out of water on the mat sell. It was, he was doing very big theatrical selling for Togo and Hadaka. I don't know. I would say he hasn't gotten the greatest chances to impress so far but then he got 10 minutes here against two really good wrestlers so yeah there's just something missing mm-hmm. but after the match we cut to gary michael capetta the old wcw ring announcer making his ring of honor debut he's in the ring and he's interviewing maritato and mamalu and the, wouldn't the time for him to debut be in that opening segment instead of having was, the ring announcer doing it that's exactly what I was about to say. If, if you're going to have Gary Michael Capetta to, there, and the only thing he's doing is do, is in-ring interviews and backstage interviews, why wasn't he? Why didn't you debut him right at the start of the show with Paul Lennon and go, "Hey, everybody, we got a new ring interviewer. You know, this is going to be your Mean Gene. It's Gary Michael Capetta, and he's got something he actually needs to do. You know, he needs to address something with Paul London." And instead, they had Stephen DeAngelis do it. Who well, I've never Very seen. Cool. I've never seen do an interview in any other point. So yeah, it's weird. Just a bizarre choice. That was exactly what I was about to say. And so he's interviewing Maritato and Mama Luke. The announcers, strangely enough, act like they don't know what's going on with Gary Michael Capetta. They almost made it feel like Gary Michael Capetta just wandered into the <laughs> arena and started interviewing people of his own volition against the will of everyone else on the show. They're just like, what's Gary Michael Capetta doing here? I don't know. I guess he's interviewing people for Ring of Honor. It was just kind of a weird way to treat it like they were one step behind. Yeah, and Kayfabe, don't don't they have a producer? <laughs> that yeah, yeah. It's like, cut to Gary. I don't know. Weird. Why would even even just you would think they would know in advance that Gary Michael Capetta would be here. This isn't a wrestler running in from the crowd from another promotion. You know, Gary Michael Capetta did not fight his way through security so he could interview Tony Mamaluke. He doesn't and James work here. <laughs> He's really desperate to interview people, guys. <laughs> but He needs this. <laughs> he hasn't had a human interaction in two weeks. But anyway... <laughs> Maritano complains yet again that Mama Luke isn't letting go of the cartoonish FBI gimmick, which he has been complaining about ad nauseum for a lot of shows now. Mama Luke responds with a pretty fiery rebuttal, actually, where he talks a, kind of a heel rebuttal where he brings up leaving WCW and saving Maritano's career with the FBI gimmick, taking the credit, getting some booze. But they then appear to shake hands and make up, but Mama Luke suplexes him with the old handshake into the belly-to-belly trick. And that leads directly into an impromptu match, because I guess something this would 
happened a couple times in the show where something weird or impromptu, almost like the wrestlers were booking themselves, would happen, and Gabe would just be like, well, it's unscripted. Anything can happen. So this was one of those. We get an impromptu official match. The, na- and- the name is the prophecy. The unscripted <laughs> name is the real prophecy. If you name something, everything has to follow that name. And... Tony Mamaluke beats James Maritato in three minutes, 30 seconds, when Mamaluke pins Maritato after a low blow. And I'll give these guys credit. They worked to the gimmick, even though both of these guys are known for a lot of mat wrestling. They work a fierce kind of around the ring brawl. You know, they work like they hate each other, like they're pissed off. I... Mama Lu- Maritano, I mean, blades early in the match, and I felt kind of bad for him because it felt like a blade, uh, a waste to blade in a three and a half minute match, especially when I think he loses the match about a minute later. So you bleed basically for it to be barely visible, and yeah, it's just a very quick match. They brought on the outside for a couple minutes. Maritano takes a pretty big bump off the apron into a guardrail. They come back in, they wrestle for a minute, Merit- Mama Luke hits a low blow, gets the pin. And uh, with, with, the with, with Maritato uh, on the ropes, right? Like the referee counts even though Maritato is on the ropes? That's some, that, I noticed that anyway. That, that was also an interesting thing where there was a couple matches tonight where the refs did what refs often do, which is they miss something or don't do the right thing. But Gabe really tried hard to sell on the show how Ring of Honor has the greatest referees. And, yeah, Maritano had his hand and foot on the ropes, and he missed a low blow that got him into that position. But greatest refs in the business. And there's really not much to to judge this match on. It was three and a half minutes. Yeah, It's a little weird that they were building this up for a few shows and then they, they, they'll they have a rematch on the next show but they kind of give it away here the first meeting just completely unannounced impromptu short little tiny match and after the match we get a little segment where Ma- Maritano gets back on the mic and he challenges Mama Luke for a rematch on the next show where if Maritano wins the FBI gimmick is done forever, and they have to be a serious tag team that takes things serious because they're serious. And if Mama Luke wins, they can ha- he can have the FBI gimmick. You know, it, this is all logically built up, but it's still a little weird to me that it's like most of the time they're just like bickering, right? They're just like, ah, I like this gimmick. I don't like this gimmick. You got to get serious. I don't want to get serious. Then it all explodes in like uh, – incredible violence like they're making each other bleed and like just beating the hell out of each other and it seems like you would not get that mad over that unless you were like drunk and i I, as far as i can tell nobody was drinking and then the next minute they're like all right we you know we hate each other but if i beat you you know we'll be you know we just can't wear as ostentatious clothing to the ring like but we're still gonna team (laughs) together there was just something that didn't um i don't know didn't all fall into place for me You'll have to use the right entrance music CD if I win this match. The stakes have never been higher. But I, I thought it was, I agree with that sentiment that you just expressed. I thought it was weird 
kind of going into that, where the last two shows, they were in, working together in tag matches, and they never really did much dissension, which maybe that's them not wanting to distract from them trying to have good matches. But again, it, it, it reiterates that kind of zero to 60 vibe, where, as you said, they go to from kind of mild annoyance to bloody hatred within five minutes. And back to uh, here's uh, here's how we're going to dress in our matches. <laughs> and, and it's weird where Maritato, I think I might be wrong, but when he's on the mic after the match and he's making that challenge for the next show, he I think he phrased it as, if, if he wins, not only will the FBI gimmick be dead forever, but you and I will have to be a serious tag team. It's weird where... Mama Luke just told him, you owe, my, you owe your entire career to me. He cheap shots Maritato. He bloodies him. And Maritato still wants to team with him. Yeah. Like He's like, if I beat you, we got to tag together, you know. Like, it's like he doesn't want to give this like, up. It's literally like they're just drunk. Like, that's, <laughs> that's really how it feels. <laughs> it's just a very weird vibe to this. I mean, I'll say it's memorable. I don't know if it's great, but I at least it, it's not something I even had to really look at my notes at right now, I could just remember it off the top of my head. You don't know if it's great, so you're saying it might be great. As always, it falls somewhere in the middle on our scale of where everything is either the greatest thing of all time or the worst thing of all time. Right. This was neither. Uh-huh. We jump... Michael... But... But, Matt, Gary Michael Capetta's facial expression in this next segment might be the greatest thing ever because we cut backstage where Gary Michael Capetta is with American Dragon. So, Gary moves fast. He hustled right to the back. He asked Dragon who his new partner is going to be, and Dragon points to Michael Modest, who's backstage, and cuts a very brief 20-second promo. The camera pans back to Dragon and Capetta. Dragon has his arms crossed, or arms on his hip. No, he has his hands on his hips, and yeah. he's like nodding like, yeah. Modest is the deal. And Gary Michael Capetta looks what I can only just be described describe as gassy. <laughs> and I just started chuckling out loud at that. That's the way they ended the segment. <laughs> yeah, it was it was weird because um it's like Gary Michael Capetta is interviewing Dragon and then he's like, I have a partner, and then they pan to Mike Modest who just talks directly to the people. It's like Gary <laughs> Michael Capetta's not there. <laughs> like that's not yeah. how, like, that's not how interviews work. <laughs> just Everything's so convenient, yeah. and I, I guess this is the right place to note that if I remember clar- correctly, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is Michael Modest's first and last Ring of Honor show, and the reason why, they had more plans for Michael Modest, but I'll return to the Observer here, where this would co- this little nugget would come a few weeks after the show, when Michael Modest, in fact, was already announced for the next Ring of Honor show, but Dave writes... Michael Modest had a falling out with Ring of Honor and canceled his appearance on the November 9th show in Philadelphia after getting plane ticket itinerary where he'd be taking a red-eye flight out of California for the show. Modest and Booker Gabe Sapolsky had a discussion when Modest canceled, which ended with bad feelings, as Gabe Sapolsky noted that Modest had had done angles and been on TV to promote the advertised match at Glory by Honor. Anyway, it ended on bad terms, and at this point, the two sides won't be working together. So, yeah, it's kind of a weird, abrupt thing where, I guess, Modest didn't like that his plane ticket was a red-eye. He canceled his booking outright over that. Gabe calls him up. They get into an argument, and I guess the argument must have been pretty bad because not only did they 
not only did they get the not only did he not come in and do that match, he could even talk him back into that. They, I don't think they ever worked together again. I'm going to be honest, Trevor. I thought that would be a more interesting story than it turned out to be. Uh, but I feel like I have to document the history. I have, I have to. You have to know if you're listening to the show. This is going to be your only resource ever for Ring of Honor history. You have to know why Michael Modest never wrestled in Ring of Honor again. Sure. <laughs> You're not convinced, but we get to the third match in the first round of Ring of Honor's tag title tournament, and that's American Dragon and Michael Monist defeating Divine Storm of Chris Divine and Quiet Storm in six minutes. Sorry to interrupt, but I had to get in this line that I wrote in my notes that I forgot to get in, which is that Michael Modest says in his promo that he and Dragon will be the top tag team in Ring of Honor. And I am very disappointed that they were not interrupted by a certain Dunn and Marcos for making that claim. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, that's not very modest, but <laughs> also a good joke. Even better. But, yeah, American Dragon and Michael Modest beat Divine Storm, uh, Chris Divine, Quiet Storm, in 623 when Modest pins Divine after a fisherman's superplex. Matt, do you, let's have you start this one off then since you just mocked my incredible Michael Modest tidbit. All right. Well, I'm not going to tell a story in seven minutes and 21 seconds. That's on the next show. But, okay. um, so, okay. So, um, first of all, one thing that I thought was good about the new commentary is that, uh, Ray Murrow, um, Doug Gentry really knew his shit. Like he would like throw in lots of different like facts and information and you could tell like he really knew what he was talking about as opposed to like Steve Carino kind of getting secondhand info from uh, from uh, Doug and kind of trying to squeeze it in there. So that was that was helpful. He might not have been a great commentator, but he really was a smart guy about wrestling. Um, the one thing that I did think was interesting, though, is that he called Quiet Storm a master of submissions, which I don't think he had ever demonstrated at any point in ROH before. Maybe uh, <laughs> am, I, am I misremembering that? I don't know if there was many submissions in all those scramble matches and Mikey Whipwreck student matches. I, I don't think there was. There may, there may not have been more than two or three submissions among all of those wrestlers in all of those matches. Yeah. Um, there's a spot where Chris Devine has Dragon in a, like an armbar spot, and Dragon just like powers him all the way up over his head, and the crowd went insane for that. And I have to agree, it was really cool because Dragon, you know, not a particularly big guy. Um, the one thing I noticed about this more commentary stuff. So like early uh, Chris Lovey Gabe Sapolsky commentary thing, like I noticed there was a little bit of a Beavis and Butthead quality to him. He was very giggly during a lot of stuff, which could be amusing, but, like, he was really mean to Mike Modest in this match. He was like, what is the deal with this guy's look? And he goes, he looks like an enlarged 80-year-old midget. It's like, <laughs> it's like that is just rude. That's just not nice. I can't, like, maybe that's why Modest uh, didn't come to the next show. Like, I-, I wouldn't be happy if the commentary said that about me, but I'm wondering if that commentary was done after the falling out and this was Gabe being bitter, now that you mentioned that. So maybe that's, I wonder too. Maybe that story was okay after all. You gave me a because, lot. You gave me a lot to think about, Trevor. See, it, it, it all pays off down the road. I'm planting seeds. That's right. But actually, I, I wondered that too because there's a segment I guess we'll get to coming up, but I'll spoil it. Where the natural born sinners are, we're told they're hurt backstage. They've been ambushed, and Gabe immediately starts going into. You know, I think Boogaloo's career might be over. And no, 
looking back, we know that's because on the next show, we'll get into it on episode eight, Boogaloo no-shows and that that event, and Ring of Honor cuts them off. So, obviously, they record the commentary after the next event. Yeah, in so chunks, I, yeah. It would have been around that time probably when they found out about Michael Mata. So it, this very well might have been Gabe jokingly kind of grinding an axe here. Because I did think that stood out where, you know, Michael Moss is this intense, you know, not a big guy, but muscular and a serious wrestler. And he's laughing and calling him, as you said, an enlarged 80-year-old midget. That's a direct quote. I wrote it down mm-hmm. just to make sure I got his exact wording. And I, I thought it was out of place too especially when he's a baby face on this event. But what you said about the Beavis and Butthead quality, I would agree. Sometimes I found it charming where there'd be a few times where Gabe and Doug came off as what they probably were at the time, which is friends having a good time watching wrestling. Sometimes I did agree with you that Gabe came off as a little immature for the guy that was the elite announcer. But they do have obviously more camaraderie and chemistry than Steve Carino and Donnie B. Had. Oh my God. So much. And like, yeah. you could, you could ignore them most of the time uh, at worst. So like, that's pretty useful too. Um, com- when you were compared to what we're used to, as far as back to the match, um, one thing that stood out about modest was he would just destroy guys with his forearms, like with divine, like he just like, wore out his face with these with these forearms and he would do that for the rest of the night um he did a uranagi suplex that was cool um a divine eventually uh, botched the head scissors as a comeback <laughs> and then um like i said modest hit the top rope fisherman suplex i would say early on it was kind of okay like with the mat stuff and there were some moments in the forearms but i thought it was also kind of a mess like i, I didn't think it was very good at all i thought this was i would put this in the realm of the other two matches, I thought it was another match I got some enjoyment out of, but it was short, and overall I would rate it as average. It had I thought it was the worst, worst of the three, I thought. Slightly. Uh, I might actually put this about above the... I'm not sure. See, I think some, there were some real lows in this match compared to the other two, but some higher highs. I really... I dug the reaction Dragon got for that deadlift spot. Mm-hmm. I thought the forearms modest through... I feel like he got over 20 seconds just from those forearms. Like, that's his first entry in Ring of Honor, where he tags in, and the first thing he does is just paste, I forget if it was Divine or Storm, with forearms. And they're if you watch, I watched them a couple times, they're perfectly placed. They're right kind of where the neck meets the shoulder and the chest. But he's throwing them. These are some of the hardest forearms I've seen. Just... I would not want to take them, even though he was hitting them in what people would consider a safe place. He's just hammering this guy with them, and instantly he gets a big reaction just from forearms. I thought, again, there were some highs and some lows. The match starts, Dragon has a mat work sequence with Quiet Storm, and you go, hey, that's a that's a pretty solid mat work sequence. And then he has one with Chris Devine, and you go, oof. That's not a very good matwork sequence, but it is saved then by the slow deadlift with the armbar. But I thought Chris Devine in particular did not look good tonight. He botched a couple spots, like you said, the Rana. I just think in general, and there's only so bad you may might look when you're one-fourth of a six-minute match, but not a great night for Chris Devine. 
maybe the savage beating of Loki has thrown him off. He's completely destroyed his confidence. Um, not much else to say about that. We already went to Gabe's weird commentary. And just another quick match. Yep. And we're going to, I guess at that point, we're going to move on to... Fourth, we get a clip. The fourth match of the first round, uh, I guess, technically is what this is, even though it doesn't sound like it. But yeah. Yeah. We actually started off with a clip from, I guess we should note, this is Ring of Honor had their very first fan fest ever. They had, I guess, an hour or so before the show, maybe an hour and a half. It looked like they had some wrestlers walking around, some signings or something. Basically, I don't know exactly what this fan fest entailed, but it was a pre-show event, I think the first one they've ever had. And so we see probably 50, 100 people walking around, milling around, and the Carnage crew come to the ring and do what the Carnage crew do, which is beat the living crap out of two ring crew guys. Not the ring crew express, just two random ring crew guys. Hey, were Dunn and Marcos and, the ring crew express? Yeah, I don't think so, right? They, no, they were just called Dunn and Marcos. Yeah. But for people that are kind of have knowledge of where they're going, I want to make sure. This is just two random ring crew guys. I felt that same kind of unqueasy feeling I got with one of those hit squad squash matches where... They almost, I almost felt like they took advantage of these ring crew guys. They really brutalized them. A couple really hard chair shots that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Where, I don't know, you're just crushing guys to crush guys, just like the hit squad. Mm -hmm. Although this time, I guess they say they're doing it because they're mad they're not in the Ring of Honor tag title tournament. I think this would have more of an impact if they didn't beat up ring crew guys on every show for no reason. Like... This is why we're doing it this time, as opposed to every other time when we're just doing it for shits and giggles. But we we go there, we go to cut to live action, and the Hit Squad are coming out for their first round match against the Natural Born Sinners, and they're quickly ambushed by the Carnage crew, who are hitting them with cab caps, as is their raison d'etre i don't know if that's the right use of that phrase they beat them down and then gabe tells us that the crew has also attacked the natural born sinners backstage we never see the natural born sinners on the show so i don't know if they were even booked or if this was a way to save money i don't know gabe mentions that Boogal as we mentioned before that boogaloo's career might be over so this tell you know, it, it turned out his career in Ring of Honor was definitely over at the point of recording this. So, man, before I ask, man, that I, I like the hopefulness in what you said because it leaves it leaves an opening for Boogaloo to return to Ring of Honor in 2017, which I like. Well, if, if 2017 was Ring of Honor's Miracle Chris Daniels run, who's to say we're not going to get the Boogaloo rise to the top in 2018? Fair enough. But I, I guess the uh, one thing to note from this, which I was uh, doing on research for these shows, I was watching a Christopher Daniel shoot interview, and he talked about how the booking of this made things strange. And he, he actually said in the shoot interview, I have to question the booking here. Because what, what happens as a result of this Carnage crew attack is that the Hit Squad and natural born sinners match is thrown out before it even can begin it's a no contest which means the team that was going to face them in the second round gets a bye to the finals the weird part of this and the thing that daniels questioned is modest and dragon are the team that gets the bye to the finals not daniels and morgan which means it's going to set up a match in the finals where the heel team 
Daniels and Morgan have to wrestle three times to win the tournament, and in the finals are going to be facing a team that's only wrestled once. And Daniel said, you know, what I also agree with, which is you're kind of putting the heat on the baby faces there. You, you know, you're making them so they have the easier road. I agree, although there is precedent for this. Um, the wrestling classic in 1985, Junkyard Dog gets a bye in the second to last round of semifinals. And um, Randy Savage, the heel, has to wrestle four times and loses in the last round to Junkyard Dog. At least in... That one, that's also bad, but it's almost stranger in this one because the heel team wins this time. Not only do they come with the the bad disadvantage, they overcome it, which is what a face team would do. So I don't know if that's just because they wanted Togo and Hadaka to have two matches and they wanted them to work against Daniels because Daniels has experience, I think, working in at least one of them in Nishinoko Pro. So I'm... I'm not sure why the choice was made to have the heel team work the extra match. But or just a, like is, a, a scrambled like, booking decision after they had to change things up when Spanky couldn't make it. Yeah, I, I don't know. But anything else to say about that segment? It was seemed completely unscripted to me. <laughs> totally, totally unscripted. But we get the next match, and which is... I was going to say the next match in the first round. No, it's the first match and only match of the semifinals of the Ring of Honor Tag Team title tournament. And that's the prophecy of Christopher Daniels, Donovan Morgan, without Simply Luscious, because too many H's in that my pronunciation, but without her, because Trinity took her out. And they beat Dick Togo and Akuto Hadaka in 14-24, when Daniels pins Hadaka after an STO while Donovan Morgan holds his leg, Hadaka's leg down. So, let's see, who did the last match? Uh, I don't even know. I'll, I'll start off with this one. Yeah, I, I actually, if, do you, if you don't count the Carnage Crew thing, then I did the last match. Okay, yeah, so I'll go into this one. I always like to alternate so we get equal chances to make first opinions. Nice. Uh, this was a fun match. This was easily the best match so far on the show. And what I was talking about before, when about Hadaka and Togo being smoother than a lot of undercard guys in Ring of Honor at this point, you really get a treat when you see them against Daniels and Morgan, because all four very smooth, good, technically proficient wrestlers. Um, I, I there, there was a lot of fun just watching these guys do standard stuff, even I thought, because of that. Just really smooth, good, fast-paced action action-oriented wrestling. Structurally, it was a bit weird where they didn't really tell much of a story, and there was a couple points where Togo almost worked as a heel, which is something I'm sure he's used to, but there was kind of a weird moment during this match where early on, Togo does an eye poke, and then when the prophecy returned the favor, Gabe on commentary is like, that's an example of the prophecy, you know, just being bad heels, but because they were just returning an eye poke they had gotten... It felt like Gabe was being harsh, like they're just returning what they got. And there's also a little moment a little bit later, well, right around this time, where Daniels is almost plays face in peril for two or three minutes, and it just feels kind of weird to have him take a beat down. But then after a couple minutes, he tags out, and then they go to a Hadaka face in peril section, which feels a lot better for obvious reasons because he's not a heel here and 
there's a final few, the final few minutes of this match I thought were really they built really well to it felt big but not like they were blowing things not like they were just ruining the rest of the night they weren't going all out but they were giving you more than enough to be satisfied with I feel like they protected their biggest moves by making liberal use of guys breaking up pinfalls. Hadaka absolutely murders Daniels with a tornado DDT, just plants him. And it was the perfect move for him to make the hot tag on because it was such a big, impactful move. I thought Togo was great. I wish I could have seen even more Togo in this match. Um, the one other thing I really want to note before I give it to you is... I thought there was a move that looked really impressive that actually probably wasn't that impressive where Togo, um, Morgan has Hadaka's leg, uh, head in leg scissors. And then Togo runs in doing kind of a heelish thing and he puts Morgan in, in, leg sciss- in a head scissors too. And so Mo- Daniels climbs to the top rope and does an elbow where he hits Togo, who's at the one end of the head scissors chain of this human centipede. And even though I think wrestlers make that distance on jumps all the time, it seemed to me like the wrestling equivalent of evil Knievel jumping snake river Canyon or something, because you had that, you had that scale right there where it's like, he's jumping over two and a half people. And it's made it seem a standard jump, seem more impressive, just a standard elbow drop. But yeah, this was not great, but this was definitely the best match on the show so far. I would say like high good, very refreshing, fast-paced, fun match. Yeah, I'd say it was a quite good match. And I also feel like it might have been the first proper like good tag team wrestling match ever in ROH, like where you had a tag team match that, you know, with wrestling was solid and it built to a proper like hot tag with cool near falls that got the crowd more and more and more into it as it went. Um, I can't think of another match so far in ROH that was like that. Can you? No. I, I And even just, this isn't the first one probably, but even just it, a mid-card match that goes 14 minutes, that's just good and satisfying. You know, that wasn't too common on these early Ring of Honor shows. Now, you're getting them a little bit more as time go on, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah, you're right. It's still fairly new as far as just like a good, solid mid-card match. Um I did think that the finish was anticlimactic. Like, maybe it was good booking because, like, you know, they're heels. But it's, I don't think it was satisfying with where, where Morgan held Tadaka's leg down after. An, just like they did all these big moves and Daniels just hits an STO and Morgan holds the leg for the pin. You know, it, it's, it's not aesthetically pleasing, even if it really fits into what they're, you know, trying to do booking-wise as far as uh, getting the Daniels and Morgan over his heels. Mm-hmm. That's maybe a problem that comes also with, as you mentioned earlier, this is the first time they're teaming together, at least in Ring of Honor. So knowing that they're going to get the titles, it feels like they're leading fairly heavy into the heel mannerisms to really establish, you know, this is this is who they are. You know, they're the, they're the heel team. They're the jerks. They're going to cheat. They're going to distract the ref. St- stuff like that. So. Yeah, it, it did kind of put a little bit of a damper when they were having a really fun final few minutes, but it does play into their character. Yeah, agreed. Um, I guess um, if you want, I can do the uh, the next one, which is such a, uh, a deeply involved match. Are you going to be able to handle this one, man? I don't know. All right, well, so we have 
the top tag team in Ring of Honor, Dunn and Marcos, who um, who say that as they come down toward the ring um, against Prince Nana and Alex Arion in uh, Nana's continuing quest for a, uh, a partner that he actually likes. Um, so Nana wears practice headgear, or excuse me, protective headgear, like sort of like the uh, Rick Steiner style amateur headgear, because uh, he's still selling the head injury that Loki supposedly gave him at Road to the Title at the end of their match by kicking him and knocking him out. And he has um, he has Aris, Arian wrestle one on one with Dunn, um, and it's a very quick squash, like pretty much complete squash. Minute thirty six. Yeah, I don't know. So if, barely I don't know anything. If, I don't know if Dunn gets any uh, any offense on at all. And then right after Arian wins, Marcos sort of challenges Nana. He gets in the ring, but I guess it's technically not a match. But Nana beats up Marcos and tells Arian to be his servant and uh, and shine his shoes. So Arian super kicks him. So he's uh, Nana continues to have no luck, no luck at all with uh, with his partners. But we have luck because the Christopher Street connection come out uh, with Alice in Danger and the Japanese Pool Boy, and um, I wrote something. Oh, okay, never mind. Um, <laughs> so uh, the new uh, the new announcers I wrote do a lot of Beavis and Butthead giggling. It's there's definitely not the level of anger, although you do. Uh, it does seem like uh, Murrow or uh, Gentry is a little more yeah. homophobic. Of the two. He's a little more got a, like a gross, like gross yeah. vibe to him. Where he's not maybe angry, but he's he's kind of skeeved out. Right, exactly. About it. Uh, you know, uh, Gabe or Lovey, he's the uh, you know he makes jokes about it and is uh, definitely immature, but he's not negative in any way. You know, he'll say like, "Oh, they seem like good kissers," you know, stuff like that. So I, I thought that was really actually charming. Like that was the one thing where. In a second, um, the Christopher Street connection will be kissing in the ring, and the way Gabe say, says it is so low tone and understated. Where just he's offhandedly just like, they look like they're good kissers, like just just so matter of fact and not. And I thought that made me laugh, and I thought, well, oh, Gabe, that's good on you. Yeah, like just it, complimenting their kissing. Yeah, I did. I actually really appreciated it. It was like like it was a um, refreshing, considering all the negativity that they got. It was just like, hey, you know. Love is love, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so um, we did. It was, uh, we are recording this just a couple of days after the New York Pride Parade. So, um, but um, um, yeah. So um, Mace declares his, or excuse me, Buffy declares his love for Mace and asks him to, or or it almost seems like he's going to ask him to marry him, and. Lovey actually says, we're going to have a real gay wedding, not like that Billy and Chuck crap. <laughs> so he's actually advertising that, you know, we do gay right in ROH. We're not going to do fake gay. This is real gay. Like, there was a bit of venom in his voice for that. Like, he was, it sounded like he was mad that Billy and Chuck, because Billy and Chuck's big gay wedding had happened shortly before this, but obviously the Christopher Street connection in general, predated the Billy and Chuck gimmick, but it sounded like in that commentary, like Gabe was a little miffed at Billy and Chuck for stealing the Christopher Street Connections thunder. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but also, I think that he uh, he wanted to do it better, and I, I actually think 
he really seemed like he was not homophobic, which I appreciated. You know, he was just like, this is, like, we're playing, we're playing these characters for being ridiculous, but we don't hate them for being gay, which is a huge step up. And I think it continues to go in that direction. Um, but instead of, instead of getting married, I think Mace just basically says, you know, we don't, we don't have to get married to show our love. And they start making out. And in the middle of their kiss, uh, who should show up but Alexis Lurie, who hits Buffy with a low blow um, to break up the kiss. So I guess she's the homophobe. But, um, <laughs> um, but the Japanese pool boy has none of it. And in our uh, next bit of uh, male and female violence, the Japanese pool boy slaps uh, Lurie in the face. And then she just beats him up and hits a top rope swinging DDT on him. Um, and she kind of stands tall there. Yeah, she be- she just basically cleans house and I guess getting revenge for something they did to jo- Matthews, York and Matthews. I don't even remember. I just, uh, that's how great these segments are. This whole thing was horrible, Matt. Um, from, from the Arion squash right on down, I felt we, for people that missed the last show, I don't know why you would because it was a good episode, but Arion was a uh, New England championship or Northeast, NECW, whatever it was, championship wrestling, NECW. He was a wrestler there who had a tryout match with Maverick Wild, and we both thought Wild was a bit better, but Arion won, and here he is getting another booking. I felt a little bad for him because this crowd was not going to care about it. And in fact, very early on in a minute 30 match, you hear one isolated fan in a quiet room shout out boring. So I felt terrible for him because this is a match where it's it's not going to give you anything. It's not going to be enterta- that entertaining. It's not going to get you over. It's not a big win. You know, it's not putting you in a, in a position to s- succeed or even have a segment that's long enough to be memorable. It quickly gets overshadowed by every shenanigan that happens. And this is also one of those segments where it felt like Ring of Honor was just... It's a segment that felt like it didn't need to happen. Like, all these guys didn't have to be booked on tonight's show. There was already enough stuff going on, and in, I guess we should note that who, uh, I think it's the Christopher... I mean, no, uh... No, do, um... Do Dun and Marcos help anyone to the back? I'm not even sure. Um, that might have been a different segment. I think it was a different segment. Yeah, but still, you have... Dunn and Marcos, Prince Nana, Alex Arion, the Christopher Street Connection, which is now a big, larger posse because it's got Japanese pool boy and Alice in Danger still there, and Alexis Laurie. This is the only segment, you know, this is the kind of their point in front of the crowd. This is why they're there. And none of this was needed. None of it at all. You, you had all these guys on the show just to do this, this kind of five to six minute buffet of needlessness. Yeah, I um, that's a good way of putting it—a buffet of needlessness. But they, I mean, I guess you, what you could say is that ROH is loyal to these guys. They booked them on every single show, Nana and uh, the Christopher Street Connection, and Don and Marcos. Ever since they debuted the first time, they've been on every show. So I guess they just—they just—it's just a sense of loyalty. Like we're going to have these guys on the show, and you could argue that having them in these little dinky segments pays off because when they want to actually do something with them, they sort of have like a. A consistent presence there, so it's almost like, oh, hey, they're actually doing something real with these guys. Um, I, I could sort of see an argument for that. I do like 
I think one thing indie wrestling has kind of lost is not every match or segment needs to be long. Not every match or, or segment needs to have the goal of being a, a great professional wrestling match. And I think little segments with little C-level characters can make your promotion feel like a bigger world. But this was just going too far in one direction. Dave talked about in The Observer how a bunch of people sent him reports from being there live where they said they really disliked the segment. I never got the impression live watching this that the crowd completely turned on it, but I could see some fans probably you know, coming away saying this is not the kind of thing I like. Um, yeah, but it's also, I don't can't imagine at this point anyone coming away from it being like, this is not what I expect, because they have yeah. one of these literally every show. Mm-hmm. And one other thing is, uh, a complaint maybe we'll get to a little bit later in more detail a lot of people live had was that the show was too long and this is these are the kind of segments you could cut to shorten it but i'm dave and the observer at the time said something like his theory he didn't know why but his theory why it was so long was that when cancellations happen the old school booking idea is to give fans extra stuff to make them feel like they got their there's money worth their money's worth. I feel like Dave was wrong in his assumption on this one because we've seen a lot of Ring of Honor shows recently that felt overstuffed with needless segments. This yeah, the was last, just part the last of the course. One, the last one, you know, it had better wrestling up and down, but I thought it was just as bloated. This did not feel like they were doing extra yeah. to 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 make up for something. This just felt like business as usual. Yeah, but I agree. I agree. Next, we get a pretty historically significant match because it's low-key second-ever Ring of Honor title defense, and it turns out not to be a successful one in a pretty big shock because Xavier beats low-key in 25 minutes, 41 seconds, after a 450 splash to win the Ring of Honor title. He becomes the second-ever Ring of Honor champion. Dave, at the time, wrote in The Observer, Nobody expected Low-Key to lose, but a lot of people were questioning such a quick title switch after establishing the belt and putting on, on someone not considered one of the top guys in the company. The company's long-term plan was always for Xavier to get the title, to elevate him to the top level, and in fact, this show's job was to, seen as to elevate Xavier, London, Shane, and Jay Briscoe. So, I don't know, if, I don't think you can say it, it worked for Xavier here. The other little note before I talk about the match itself was this match was one of the reasons Gabe gave for this show being too long. I think that's kind of a weak excuse because there's a lot of things you could have trimmed, but it is worth noting that he claims this match was given 15 minutes and Loki took it 10 minutes extra. So this was supposed to be a 15-minute match that Loki turned into a 25-minute match. That sounds like bullshit to me. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I will note in the Observer... A few months earlier, I was reading, they said that TNA was complaining about Loki doing matches shorter than they asked him to do. So if this was true, maybe Key just doesn't care about time cues. I don't know. But this match did go on a long time, and if you, in something that might support your idea that that was a bullshit excuse is... This match didn't feel much, like, the extra 10 minutes of this match did not feel much different than the first 15. And a lot of times when guys kind of go into business for themselves, quote-unquote, you'll, you'll know because 
they're adding there's a bunch of extra huge near falls at the end they they're just trying to make a match even bigger and they're kind of selfishly going over the time cues what they've been told they can, should do but everything in this match what they did in minute 5 didn't feel that much different other than the interference than what they did in minute 25 so if loki did go into business for himself and do another 10 minutes it's pretty weird because it's not like those extra 10 minutes really were much different or added much. And that takes me into the match itself. Before you start, I, I just want to make one thing that I found funny. Go ahead. So at the beginning of the match, obviously they put over the two guys and, you know, and there's a lot to say about Loki and all that stuff. And then to put over Xavier, Lovey just says, a man who's beat James Maritato. <laughs> like that, that was, that's his, uh, that's his one big, uh, um, stat for Xavier, and that—that's one of those things I love because again, he's you know Chris Lovey is Gabe Sapolsky. He's the Booker, like he has no one to blame for that line but himself. You know, <laughs> having to throw out that limp noodle of praise. <laughs> you know, he could have set Xavier up with with bigger matches, but this match, this is the first not good low key match in Ring of Honor. This is. Oh, I guess you could count the Prince Nana match, but that was a super short squash. But the thing I thought was really weird about this match was it was so one note for 25 minutes. Loki would hit Xavier pretty hard. I would say this is the hardest he's hit anyone uh, on the level of the AJ matches. And every once in a while, Xavier would get a bit of a comeback. And then Loki would go back on offense and it never felt like it kicked into that final gear of near falls. It never felt like it really told a story. In fact, at one point Gabe and, and Doug try and set this up as almost like the Rocky three or alley Foreman rope a dope thing where, you know, Xavier's letting key beat him up because he's hoping Loki will get tired, which I think was a real odd way to try and sell maybe that, Xavier was really getting his butt handed to him at some points in this match, especially when, if that was his strategy, which it obviously wasn't, it would be a real bad strategy because Loki two shows ago wrestled for 60 minutes in an incredibly hot building. So if his strategy was, I'm going to let Loki beat on me until he gets tired of beating me up, I think he was going to have to get beat up for a long time. And the match, just again, the match never... It never gets into that next gear. They never have a big run. There's never a huge story. Another weird thing that happens is Gabe mentions that Loki had hurt his ankle training while he was in Japan for Zero One. And later on, it kind of hurts the match because Doug Gentry actually points out, he asks at one point later in the match, why isn't Xavier working on the ankle? And then you can almost hear Gabe kind of panic and cover his tracks where he's like, well... My super, my super secret source told me that Loki hurt his ankle. Most people don't know it, know that. So, but then it you, makes you wonder, well, why did Gabe bring that up in the first place? Because he's recording this commentary after the fact. So you're bringing up an ankle injury, a legit ankle injury that he doesn't really sell, that never really plays into the match. I mean, Xavier does chop block Loki's leg, but it's not the ankle. It's just... It, it's 25 minutes, and I'm surprised at just how little they attempt 
Like it's it's very middle of the road second gear the whole way, and we get our finish, which is Christopher Daniels comes out, and even that is weird because Christopher Daniels comes out and he just stands there until Loki notices him, and then Loki makes the stupid move of chasing Lo- Daniels on the outside. He starts stalking him on the outside. Xavier chop blocks Loki from behind. Daniels then takes this huge like pylon this big metal rod with a cement block attached to one end and holds it on Loki's body on the outside. It looks kind of ridiculous. Xavier hits the top of this rod with a chair. Loki sells it big. He spits up blood. Xavier just goes back to the ring and Daniels just watches Loki and they let a minute go by where Loki just crawls back to the ring for like a minute. And at that point, Xavier just hits the 450 splash and wins. And it's just a really weird, anticlimactic way to end the match. Um, I'm going to say something controversial, um, which is this match has a very bad reputation. It's an infamous match in ROH history, and I liked it. Wow. I, I do like this. Yeah, I didn't think it was like a real good match or anything, but for its length, I was entertained by it. I thought it did tell a story. You know, and the story, which is being that, you know, Xavier is not in Loki's league, and they worked a match that didn't, you know, that didn't have that high athleticism competitiveness that most Loki matches have because Xavier couldn't do it, whether that's in real life or just in storyline. And so what Xavier did was he just took a lot of punishment until he had the opportunity for his, for his uh, plan to come to fruition, basically. And um, and in the meantime, you know, Loki kicked the crap out of him, and I thought it was entertaining. And I thought that, um, you know, Xavier, he, he got in a few big spots here and there. Sometimes it was sloppy because it's Xavier. But I was never bored by this. I really wasn't, and I expected to fall asleep during it. So, you know, part of it's just expectations. But I really liked that Xavier, that they booked this thing where Xavier came out of nowhere to win the title. It was almost like their version of Jinder Mahal in a way. Um, but, you know, a little bit more set up than that. Um, but I like that, you know, Xavier came out of nowhere and, you know, you know, was shown to not be deserving, but it was all part of Christopher Daniels' secret plan. Um, you know, it, you know, Xavier might not have been good enough in the end to really hold up the, his end of the bargain after winning the title. But I thought that this was like kind of a bad match in a good way. I don't know. It's hard to explain. But I didn't find the ending anticlimactic. I thought it was kind of cool. The way that he just he chop-blocked him. I, I really liked the whole like cinder block on the chest, chair into the cinder block thing. I thought that was a brutal-seeming and unique uh, kind of uh, way of destroying somebody. You don't see that very often. And then at the, after the match, they, um, you know, they cover low-key in the ROH banner and uh I know you'll get I know there's a line that you enjoyed from that so I'll <laughs> let you say it but um I I don't know like I'm not saying it was good but I liked it uh, I thought it worked for what for what it was trying to do It's weird because I gave this ring of, of like I would say it's a little below average to me for a match but yet I can't say I was ever I agree with you where I have to say I can't say I was ever bored by it, but I can't say I was ever super entertained by it either. I was just 
it, it passed the time. And in terms of, you know, the story of it being Xavier, showing that Xavier is clearly out of Loki's league, so that's why he had to cheat to win, I felt like Loki gave Xavier enough, just enough offense where it kind of worked against that story. It wasn't like Xavier's miles away from this guy. It was more, it felt more like what it was, which is it's a mid-carter against the main eventer. You know, it didn't feel like it didn't feel like this guy who's just he's in a, such a desperate position. It's more like they're having a match where Loki's winning seventy thirty, and then here comes Daniels. Here comes the big kind of twist moment. Xavier was just good enough to withstand the punishment, which I think is a um, is an effective uh, characterization of a character. I think sometimes I just like my heels a bit more obvious. I like my very hard I, I i can't deal with nuance matt i can't stand shades of gray but i i agree absolutely with the one thing no matter how you feel about this match and fans you listen you watch at home judge for yourself get back to us we'll have contact info at the end of the show as always but so split the tie but i think one thing we can all agree on is Gabe really did a good job of making this a surprise because no one, when Dave writes that no one saw this coming, no one saw this coming. You watch the reaction of the crowd. Even they give like a big extra big pop that kind of, Oh shit, this is really happening. Once that three count happens, they stand up where everyone was shocked. And if there is a plus to kind of the weird understated, unimpressive way they booked Xavier in these first few first six months, seven months of the year, is that no one did see this coming. And especially the timing of if Dave is right and they really plan this right from the very beginning, that idea of you give a you give Loki the title and then you barely have the reign started. So, you know, people the last thing people are thinking of when a guy becomes the first ever champion of a company is that he's going to lose it in a second defense yeah. to to a mid-card guy. So, in terms of creating a genuine surprise, he absolutely succeeded. If I was to have watched following this live, it, I would have just went, what? Like, I, I wouldn't have been able to believe it. So, that's good. And then this, the little line that Matt says, mentioned, he saved for me, like, such a good co-host. He saved it for me like someone saving the wishbone from a chicken. Exactly. Um, <laughs> The, the prophecy after the match, they put the the plastic kind of material, giant Ring of Honor banner over low-key. And Gabe says, he starts screaming like, oh, they're going to burn the Ring of Honor banner. And then after a second, he catches himself. And then like under his breath almost, he says, oh, wait, those don't burn. <laughs> and I just started laughing. Why, does, like, he, why does he even know that? And also, like. You're, you're the we're not there like you could say anything and we'd buy it but i like that gabe was almost so honest that he couldn't help himself like he had to be like they're gonna burn oh wow well, no that doesn't burn and he's just like just like no no i, I again gabe had some really awkward kind of like you you keep saying beavis and butthead moments yeah. but he also had kind of a couple awkward charming moments i think that was one of them yeah where he almost trips over himself like a puppy who's feet are too big for his body at this point he can't help himself a couple of times i thought that was cute but uh yeah this was a crazy thing and i think one thing we can say is that no matter what you know people look back on xavier's title reign and they don't have fond memories of it but 
even though I didn't like this match, and I think just knowing me and Matt, we're going to look at this and try and give it a fair shot match by match. You know, maybe it won't, maybe it'll be just as people remembered it. Maybe it'll be better than we remembered it, you know, but we're in the Xavier era of ring of honor now. And I, I guess it'll also be interesting to see if last episode you, you put, put out the theory that maybe Xavier was booked kind of shittily in these first six months on purpose to kind of get heel heat. I don't know if that's true or not, but I was reading reviews for this match and people put out that same theory saying that that was a rumor. So you might be onto something and I'll be interested in seeing show by show if we get more ammo for that, for that theory. Well, I just know that he had a pretty good reputation in the local indies. Um, before before ROH. And in ROH, he was never impressive at all, at least so far. Yeah. So, I, I... It'll be interesting to see if the booking now changes that he has the title, if it, if maybe it becomes even more obvious that's the direction that we're going in. And obviously, just, you know, he will get to start wrestling some better matches. During this reign, he's going to get to work Paul London. He's going to get to work AJ Styles. He's going to get to work Jay Briscoe. So he's going to get bigger opportunities to have good matches. But if, if the other match was disappointing, this next match, I'm going to say, Matt, before I even announce it, I think this is the worst match in Ring of Honor history thus far, and that is Takeo Omori defeating Sonny Siaki in 7 minutes, 28 seconds with the Axe Guillotine Driver. Uh, just before I give it to you, uh, Omori was supposed to wrestle Michael Modest, but the card was shifted around, obviously, because Modest got put in the tag tournament. They had to find... So I don't think Sonny Siaki, who was one of the flying Elvises in TNA at the time, was even booked initially for the card, but he was a last-minute replacement to give Amori, who was on a North American excursion at the time, someone to wrestle because he was already booked. Matt, do you agree that this match was double-plus ungood? Yeah, I, I wrote down, like, it's just so random. Like, they... Um like, they have this big world title change, and they just have two newbies, basically, to ROH come out. And they're big, and they're slow, and it doesn't look like an ROH match at all. It's just very methodical, just chops and chin locks, and there's a pile driver. Um, they chant for Siaki, which is surprising to me. Um, <laughs> and then Omari just wins with a head drop move. And, like, I figure if you're going to do a match like this, make it, like, two minutes. They made they gave them seven minutes, which is more than they've given a lot better guys it's other times yeah. in the past. And it just I don't know, it just seems so random to me. And yeah, it was terrible. It just totally sucked, and it was I, I didn't understand it. I, one thing I did find weird, like kind of which kind of I think hurts the uh, feeling of cohesion in the promotion. You know, like if you watch a WWE show from any time period or NWA or whatever, if there's a big angle, the announcers spend the next like match talking about it and this match they just they announced it in a vacuum like the announcer they didn't even mention what had happened previously and if there's any match that the commentators could ignore to talk about a big angle it would be this one 
I, yeah. just, I just thought that was weird. Like they just like, okay, well, the title chain's hand, giant heel turn, uh, big takeover by the heel faction. Well, on to a uh, Sunny Siaki match. <laughs> like <laughs> it was just, it was weird in all sorts of ways. Um, I don't know if there's really much to say about it beyond that, uh, right? I, I got a couple things to say, but okay, first I'll ahead. say, I, I never, um, I never thought of that, but that's actually a great point. Like if there's ever a match where you should be still selling the previous match, it's this match. You know, you should be, that last match had a huge kind of surprise result and this match is nothing, but you know what Gabe's doing instead? He's selling this, he and Doug are selling this as like an example of ring of honor, giving you huge dream matches. They're like, Omori's from Japan and Sonny Siaki works in TNA and, you know, you know, this is the kind of dream match where we're just matching up guys from all over the place. And I just kept going, oh, like, Omori, I'll say this. I'm not going to blame Siaki because Omori clearly is the guy leading Siaki through this match. And Omori wrestles what I would describe as a match that's the level of basic you would see from three-month wrestling students. It's just the most, apart from maybe a couple moves at the end, it is just super-duper basic. And it stands out even more in a promotion where it's full of young, hungry guys, as Eddie Guerrero would say a few shows earlier. You know, Ring of Honor and these work-rate kind of crazy indies in general are full of guys who either just love wrestling so much or they're trying to get noticed. They're just going all out. And Amori here is doing the opposite of going all out. And it stands out like such a sore thumb where he's doing the bare minimum to get through the match so he can go home and just... And it's funny because a few months earlier, Dave wrote, you know, or a few weeks earlier, I don't know, he wrote that Omori has been on a U.S. excursion, and the reports are that he's been unimpressive thus far. And I thought, well, I don't remember Omori being that bad, but I should have listened. And I, I thought the other thing that was pretty funny was, oh, wait, I forgot now. That's this, this match is ruining my brain, but... <laughs> now, I, that, is a, uh, that is a very strong indictment of a match. Yeah, this match it is ruined, making me... It ruined your brain. It ruined my brain. But, oh, that's the other thing. Gabe also once tried to sell this match. At, at one point, in the, ma- the crowd's kind of quiet. And it seem, they're not killing the match, but it seems like they're mildly disinterested, which is the right reaction. And Gabe starts going... I know this crowd sounds quiet, but they're watching intently. He goes, and then I think either he or I think it might have been Doug go, yeah, they're not just popping for entrances like WWE fans. How terrible. And it's like, like you, it's clear the fans are boring, are being bored by this, and you're trying to sell it like, no, you know, these fans are great. They're like a Japanese crowd watching this so intently, taking it in. Anal- and, analyzing the angles that someone has the chin lock on. <laughs> And this is a match where at one point in the middle, I'll just point. I don't know if I've ever seen this before. Both guys kind of slowly get to their feet and sell exhaustion probably three or four minutes into this match. And the move that which they're doing this for is a backdrop. Like they're selling, like that's how basic this match was. Just worst match in the company so far. Not that anything was botched, just so basic, so... Boring. Zero effort put into it. But... Next, we get something pretty noteworthy and a little more exciting, which is we get the Ring of Honor debut of CM Punk. He just walks right out there. He's like, oh, here's CM Punk. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's and apparently this was an impromptu thing because 
CM Punk and Colt Cabana that night had worked the 3DPW show we mentioned at the start of the show. They had worked it right down the street. Apparently, they had made a last-minute deal with Ring of Honor to come in and make this appearance. They added this to the show, which was another of Gabe's excuses for why the show went long, that they added this at the last minute. And they just had, like, squirted out some quick verbal deal, like, sure, we'll start booking you, come in and do a promo. And do a promo Punk does. He cuts a promo, a very surprise, like, it's a good promo in the sense that he has good charisma, he's very comfortable on the mic, he's that, he's, he's already the CM Punk we know and love in that sense, but it's a very rah-rah kind of respectful face promo, which was almost off-putting to me, because that is not the CM Punk I know, where he's, you know, I can't wait to wrestle about, in front of real fans like you guys, you are great, it'll be an honor to wrestle in front of you. He talks about how he's going to debut in November, which is not the next show, but the show after that. Colt Cabana then comes out, and he complains that, you know, why isn't he getting a Ring of Honor debut? He points out that even though Punk has worked something like 80 weekends straight, that Punk recently had a skull fracture injury where it took him out for a while, and Colt was still wrestling all that time, and why isn't why isn't he getting the shot that Punk is... And Punk says, maybe you still have something to prove, and that's the end of the promo. It's It was weird to see Colt Cabana not even attempt to be funny. That was one thing I noticed. Like, I'm so used to him always making some sort of wisecrack, but he was just a totally serious indie dude here. Like, his delivery was st- also above average um, for the guys in ROH, but he was, I agree. He was just a plain, a plain dude. Yeah, like you said, it was really weird where his his delivery was good, but it was it was a a rare kind of serious, you know, he had to play almost the kind of angry, bitter guy. I mean, it it didn't come off like he was super bitter, but the guy who had an axe to grind, right, which is not the thing. I mean, maybe that's Colt Cabana. If anyone who listens to Art of Wrestling knows that actually might be closer to the real Colt Cabana. If you've ever (laughs) listened to him talk about ad nauseum the time he was released from wwe but although now i mean back then he didn't have quite as much of an axe to grind in real life yeah he was young and had the whole world ahead of him uh-huh. but yeah, so it was definitely interesting where the to see punk where the pieces are falling into place where we only have one or two more big pieces i would say from the era we really fell in love with ring of honor to drop in now really samoa, now joe, got, samoa joe seals yeah. the deal, right like that's, and he'll and he'll be there next show yeah so it was interesting to see Punk, solid promo, and then we get go backstage where well, Jay actually, Prisco, actually, actually, I just want to... Uh, yeah, go on. The, the two pieces I guess you're thinking of, because besides Samoa Joe, would be like singles and, homicide. Yeah. And um, I almost want to say, you know, the Generation X guys, but I almost... That's a while later, yeah. Y- yeah, you, you don't really need them. So really, I think you're right. It's just It's just Joe... I would say is the only guy that we haven't seen at all yet that kind of solidifies I think what people think of when they think of the first couple two or three years of Ring of Honor the major players yep now that we've got punk here anything else about that segment I didn't want to cut you off I, I completely forgot no, I wanted to go back and talk a little bit more about Sonny Siaki no just kidding <laughs> that genuinely caught me off guard I was like oh crap I and then you said Sonny Siaki and I have like the tension left. If you had a camera on me, you would see the tension leave my shoulders. Like, oh, thank God, oh, I didn't run over Matt. Wonderful. No, go, uh, 
Go he on. made a hilarious Sonny Siaki joke. Thank but you. Jay Briscoe cuts a backstage pro- promo. And Ring of Honor's done a few of these where the promo is basically the guy just recapping everything he's done in Ring of Honor so far. And I thought it was nice that Ring of Honor had video clips for everything as he was talking. They would cut to a clip of it. So that was nice. And he talks about losing his first two matches in the company then beating Tony Mamaluke, and he said that was one of the best moments of his career. He talks about being mad about his brother, gets mad that he lost to his brother. He has kind of a good line where he talks about how, I don't know if this is even true or not, but he says, you know, I bled for the first time in my career against you, Mark, and the blood that was on your fist runs through your veins, which I thought was kind of a interesting, almost flowery poetic line you know that almost in terms of on the briscoe level that's almost shakespearean and he probably, he probably at this time was really good in his english classes in high school yeah. but you know that, that's probably the most poetic thing jay briscoe will ever say the same blood that was on your fist runs through your veins but jay briscoe i would say it wasn't a bad promo he isn't jay briscoe yet charisma wise but he put good energy into this. I will say that the very end of it gets corny where he starts getting really, really mad out of nowhere and going, he's not going to lose anymore. I'm not going to lose ever again. Like, and then he, he stomps just... his feet and folds his arms and goes, mm. <laughs> yeah, that, that felt more forced than everything else. Well, here. He, he, I mean, he was a kid. Even during that promo, he's like, you're jealous of me because I'm 18. I'm still like, holy fuck. This guy was still 18. <laughs> And now it's crazy because I'm jealous of him that he's 18. Yeah. Like, it's, it's crazy how things change. Now I'm the Mark Briscoe. Then we get another little segment. Mark Briscoe's backstage somewhere else, right in the little entranceway before the wrestlers go through the curtain. And he's offering to manage Red because Red's about to wrestle, not wrestle, wrestle Jay. And Mark gets pushy about it, literally about wanting to manage Red. He literally shoves Red. And Red responds with a super kick, which knocks Mark on his ass. And Red immediately, after that super kick, his theme kicks in. And he walks through the curtain, and the camera follows him through the curtain. Ring of Honor, in these first six, seven shows, they had really been in love with that. We follow the wrestlers either through the curtain, into the ring, or backstage. I thought this was the best of all of those, because you know the, the crowd had no idea that he had just done that, that he had just super kicked Mark Briscoe and they wouldn't know until they bought the DVD or the tape, but we did. So I thought that was a real cool kind of immersive thing. Yeah, I agree with that. And, um, uh, is there anything else you would have to say about those two little Briscoe segments setting up the next match? No, I, um, I guess, uh, the, the main thing I would say is red is, uh, not a good personality at this point. <laughs> no, I don't know if he'd ever be a great personality, but he'd be a great, amazing red in his own way. And then we get to Jay Briscoe beats the amazing red. He, so he lives up to his pray to his promise of not losing in seven minutes, 47 seconds when he hits the Jay driller. So Matt, yet again, Jay is not added to your count of one of, Jay Driller kickouts. But we'll get there. You're going to see. I'm not making this up. This is going to be the best payoff ever. Like, I'm going to love you being validated. I'm going to be like a proud papa for you. Thank you. But 
I would say if you want a great example of a match where that shows the power of just a few big moves, I would say this match. Because it's a short, again, 747, short match. I would say up until the very end, not as good as their first match. Yeah, and I was going to say the same thing. That it was like, they, in a lot of ways, they both seem like better wrestlers in this match, but the match is still not as good as the match where they just go out and just throw a bunch of shit out there and don't sell. Yeah, they're not going for as broke as much, and they're not really replacing that element with anything. And in a way, this is a slightly significant match, because Gent- Doug Gentry points out on commentary, he says, you know, this is technically a rematch of what he what he refers to as the first scheduled sanctioned match in ROH history, because technically the impromptu Christopher Street Connection Hit Squad match is the first match in, in Ring of Honor history, but really... In a lot of ways, this is the actual first match. So, you know, getting the rematch and Jay getting to actually um, win, you know, avenge a loss. It's kind of a nice way to rehab him after that clean loss to his brother. But like we were saying, I don't think this was a good match, except we go to the end. And at the end of this match, um, Red hits a code red off the second rope. And the crowd loses their ever-loving minds. They go absolutely ape shit. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. The code red off the second. They go nuts. Red hits a standing shooting star press, which is often how he would end matches. He would hit a huge move, then do the standing shooting star to finish him off. Jay kicks out. The crowd goes just as nuts again, because they bought that as the the end. Um, Jay hurts Red up and drops him, uh, I think, right on his shoulder and, and... Head, oh no, wait, Red goes for another code red, and Jay just drops him on purpose, drops him right on his head and shoulder, looked ugly, hits him with a real hard power bomb, Jay Driller, it's over. And those four moves, like the crowd was molten hot for that final minute. Before that, it was kind of disappointing, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I'll say, you know, near falls and kickouts and stuff, they get a bad rap a lot of the time, you know, as being crutches and stuff. But during a match, there are a few things that are as exciting and satisfying as a really effective false finish. You know what I mean? Like, where you really thought the match was going to be over, but you didn't want it to be, and then it's not. You know? Like, you know, sometimes where you think a match is going to be over, and you're like, oh, why didn't it end? But, like, when a match is really good, and you want it to keep going, and you think it's going to end, and it doesn't, there's, I, I don't know, there are a few things that are more satisfying as a wrestling match. And I thought this match actually had that. And it's a testament to, you know, a lot of people always say, I think people say in wrestling sometimes that, I haven't always heard this, but I've heard a couple of people say, like, the two most important minutes in the match, and sometimes the only two minutes that matter, are the first minute and the last minute. And I think this is definitely a testament to the last minute of this match gave those fans everything they wanted. You know, it didn't matter what they did in the other six or seven minutes. And what they did in the other six wasn't terrible, but again, it wasn't as good as their first match. It was kind of disappointing. But like you were saying, sometimes big moves and high spots and near falls get a bad rap. Sometimes one or two big moves at the right time, at the right place, are all you need to, to have like a win as a match for a crowd. Yeah. Couple it of, completely saved this. A couple of, of observations uh, that I had. Early on, at the very beginning, they just like, they get each other in like, 
front chanceries on the ground and just keep reversing them. Like, just front chancery, Red gets one, then Jay gets one, then Red gets one, then Jay gets one. And Levy goes, this is some, you know, this is some great stuff. And I was like, <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's really not. And at one point, Red, like, starts losing, like, his grip. Like, they don't, like, he can't, it's going too fast for him. And, and Gabe is saying that, like, it's, or Chris Levy. It's just, it's such a, yeah, it's one of those b- badly timed choices of commentary. I thought Red... A lot of these shows lately, Red looks a little... There's always one or two spots where he looks a little rough in some he, way. I thought he's literally always been like that. Except in the low-key match, there's always some spots where he looks a little rough. Yeah. In, in my memory, I think maybe I overrated him a little. Like I thought he was a clear step above a lot of the other guys. And he is a step above, but he has a little bit of that roughness that a lot of the undercard guys at this point have. Yeah, for and sure. Maybe, maybe, Maybe some people's memories of Red as he develops helps them kind of sugarcoat their memories. I, I think if you if people go back and watch some of these shows, you'll see he wasn't quite as far above the fray as maybe you remember. Yes, agreed. Um, another funny commentary part is um, when they say about um, Jay Briscoe because you know he's so good at eighteen. He's like um, he's like one of those thirteen year olds who go to Harvard. And I was thinking, <laughs> I know, like, I'm, I'm sure he means Doogie Hauser, but does that happen in real life? And if so, how often? I remember seeing, like, an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show when I was a kid. My mom had it on. And there was always, that was like a go-to Oprah Donahue thing, the very occasional, here's a 13-year-old going to university. But is it but I have to mention, uh, I don't, I'm just saying, I don't know, maybe, I, maybe I, it is. I will say, if you have a kid that's 13 and smart enough to go to a college at 13 and it's not Harvard, maybe you let him study for five more years. Maybe you don't be like, kid, we're good. You know, you're smart enough to go to the local community college right now. Yeah. Let's rush you into that so you can achieve your full potential as a welder. Yeah, I was, but, trying, to, I was, trying, to, think, I was trying to think of a college that it would be funny to diss as the one that the smart 13-year-old goes to. But <laughs> DeVry I, Institute. Yeah, I, yeah. I, <laughs> Yeah, you, uh, my my son, he uh, he goes to the University of Phoenix. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I just feel yeah. bad. I feel bad dissing anyone's college, so I don't like doing it. Yeah, college, good idea. Yeah, and Trevor, gonna tell you that Trump University but, is what I should have said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just we're just talking about Baron Trump now. Uh-huh. Baron Trump is the Jay Briscoe of our generation, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, we're in our thirties. You know, he's not in our generation. <laughs> I'm I'm thirteen at heart, Matt. But I guess the only other thing I'm going to make the weirdest transition ever. The only other thing I want to mention about that Jay Briscoe and Amazing Red match is Jay continues to do one weird, cool thing every match. This time he cloverleafed Red's legs and slammed him while he had a cloverleaf of the legs. I thought that was cool, but. Another average match with a great final minute that that satisfied the crowd. Gabe and Doug at this point then talk about how they'd like to see a third match between these two. And Gabe casually mentions, I'd like to see them as a tag team, which is what we mentioned earlier. And so, yes, there are planting seeds. We will see a Jay Briscoe Amazing Red tag team in the future. Not too far ahead, actually. And after that, we get another crazy useless segment because Elax and Dixie run in and attack Red 
and they're quickly beaten down by the SAT, who beat on them a bit, defending their boy Red. They hit Elax with the Spanish Fly, and then the mysterious big giant guy with the dreadlocks and the shades and the suit comes in. He'd turn out to be Slugger. He walks into the ring, attacks only the referee for no reason, then calmly walks back to the wall of the building to watch the rest of the show, which gets the crowd to kind of like pop out of just how surreal it is. Then Dunn and Marco show up, and this is the segment I was thinking about earlier, and they help the ref to the back while they talk about how they're the best tag team in Ring of Honor. And again, this is the second one of these segments tonight where it's just them feeling like we need to get a bunch of guys we booked on the show for what can we do? Let's just stick seven of them here. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see when the moment happens where that's no longer a thing, where like it seems like the booking, like the 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 number of guys booked and the reasons for booking them starts to seem tighter. It happens I, eventually, but I think it's a while. I think after the next show, Gabe, there's a we'll see in the notes there'll be Gabe kind of has a come to Jesus moment where he goes, okay, no more than ten matches at least, because I think even reading these reports, you're seeing fans more and more complain about the shows going late, there being too many segments. So, and I, if anyone, if any bookers can aware of what people online were saying it's going to be Gabe. So he had to know after, this, you know, the Honor Invades Boston, which we talked about how it had so many dang segments. And now this show kind of following in that you know, it's, it's becoming more of a pattern now even than the first few shows. Yeah, agreed. Although I think that this overbooking of uh, acts, I feel like that actually remains until all the way until mid-2004 when uh, Feinstein leaves. Yeah, there might be fewer technical matches on, on announced official matches, but there's still going to be a lot of bloat in different ways, I a, think. We'll a see. lot of four-corner survivals and scramble matches with a million guys. That's part yeah. of it also. Yeah, just people jammed in in places you don't need. But right. on to a happier topic, which is the big semi-main event, the street fight. Paul London takes on Michael Shane, and Paul London gets his win on Michael Shane. He beats him in 20 minutes, 38 seconds, with via pinfall after a shooting star press off a giant, rickety, warped ladder. Matt, did this live up to kind of the memories and the reputation for you? Yeah, I would say it did. I mean, it's not like the greatest match ever, but as far as being an exciting indie spot fest, with, but like more than a spot fest, because there's... There's some motion there, and there's some really good selling. I thought it really did. I'll, I'll do a little bit of a play-by-play. Um, okay. Great. Just uh, to um, so start off with uh, London's like a total house of fire, which he's really good at, and um, noticeable that there's no Rudy Boy at all tonight, um, which I don't think is a is a negative because <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> think he, I don't think he really ever added that much. Um, but um, so. London press slam Shane off the top to and the, like to crotch him on the top rope like Shane, like like the sort of like the press slam that Ric Flair always gets done to him when he's on the top rope. But London throws him crotch first onto the rope. Um, uh, London tries to skin the cat, but Shane spears him while he's upside down, and London falls hard to the floor. I thought that was really cool. Then London wipes out the guardrail again, which he seems like he likes to do. Um, Sets up a table, he grabs a chair, and Shane does a flip dive onto the chair that London's holding, like a senton dive. Um, and uh, and the, uh, the chair goes into London's head, so London blades, not really a good blade job, 
very so-so uh, blade job by London. But it allows to transition to Shane getting the heat. And um, then London rams Shane into the chair, and which is like propped up in the corner. And Shane has a really good blade job. So Shane is like gushing blood. London just has a little bit of a trickle. But Shane actually pulls out the ladder first. It's like the, the smaller ladder. Um, and uh, he's... He's like uh, kicks the ladder. Uh, London kicks the ladder into Shane, uh, and the selling already is well above average for ROH. Like they're, it's pretty dramatic selling. It's not like very specific body part selling, but it's you know they're selling in a way that adds to the drama. And um, London goes for something off the top rope, but it's uh, it's very awkward. Like there's just like this awkward botch where I can't even tell what was supposed to happen. Um, but the crowd is very with them. They don't make fun of them for it at all. And they just are allowed to move right on. Uh, the ladder's in the corner. Uh, there's a series of reversals, and Shane belly to bellies London into it for two. Then Shane just, like, drops the ladder onto London. Uh, London does a head scissors on Shane on the apron, and Shane goes through the, through the table on the floor. Uh, London then pulls out the really tall ladder from the beginning, and he, uh, he props it in the corner. Uh, then he backdrops Shane into it, and Shane runs away to the aisleway. So London runs up the ladder that was already uh, leaning on the corner, and this is the spot that they spoiled early on, one of the very famous spots from early ROH. London runs up the ladder, does a flipping senton onto Shane in the aisle, um, which was awesome, totally awesome. And then uh, he sets up the other ladder. He, uh, he handsprings off it, but Shane reverses into a powerbomb for two, which is really cool. And at this point, the crowd is just going nuts. ROH chant. Shane hits the picture-perfect picture, picture perfect elbow, and it really is a good elbow, I will say. And <laughs> it gets two. Um, London does the uh, shooting star press. He gets two. Um, huge ovation again. Uh, London sets up a giant ladder, which is... Uh, uh, it really is uh, very bent at this point, but he sets it up. Uh, Shane knocks him off and climbs up, hits the elbow for two. Shane climbs up again. London knocks him off with a springboard flip kick, which I thought was really cool. Like, he, f he springboards into the ropes and does almost like a cabrata, but he kicks Shane on the ladder to knock him off. Yeah, exactly. Imagine a lion salt that ends in a drop kick at, well, to a guy that's standing on a ladder. Like, almost like a moonsault kick. It was really cool. Yeah, very well done. And I thought, like, it, like, made sense. Like, that would be the move to do there um, if you really needed to do something. And then London climbs back up the ladder, and this is the debut of the famous Please Don't Die chants, which were initially associated with London. And Lovey uh, really puts it over. He's like, man, you know, these crowds today, they want the wrestlers to kill themselves. And this crowd's chanting, Please Don't Die, we have the best <laughs> fans ever. Which, you know, that he had a point. Um, yeah. And he does the shooting star off the ladder and he wins, and it's a perfect shooting star press. And when London hits it, uh, referee Paul Turner jumps like 100 feet in the air to sell it, <laughs> and it's awesome. And the crowd goes nuts, and the crowd chants, match of the year, five-star match. It was not a five-star match. It was a six-and-a-quarter-star match. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but no, it was really good. Like, it was, it was a good, like, it was, it was a great match, I thought. Um, it was a lot more than you would expect from two guys at this experience level. They really put together a well-designed match. And the selling, especially by London, was very good. And you could, you know, this was London's big star-making match. And from this moment on, he's, you know, one of the biggest stars in ROH. I completely agree. I, I, 
this match, again, like you, it's not a perfect match. It's not a five-star match. It's a great match. And it holds up, I think, 15 years later. Not that 15 years is a super long period of time. But you would think if any match would... um. Matches that tend to age poorly are matches that are less about story and more about big spots and gimmicks because the bar for those are always getting get it is always getting raised up quicker and quicker. That's the first thing that gets raised. And I was surprised watching this how all the big spots hold up. Like some of them because they're athletic, some of them just because they're unique. Like the Paul London moonsault kick, the running off the ladders, not still to this day, not something that you see a ton of. Maybe because a lot of people just don't have the confidence to do it. Yeah, the, um, the timing of the spots is very important. These guys had very good timing. Yeah, even doing stuff like the Rana Paul London does to put. Uh, Shane through the table. It's not the typical one where your fa- your head's facing the sky. Your head's facing the the floor. Just little things like that. Everything's got a little bit of different of a twist in it. it. Everything just feels a little more novel. I also give these guys huge credit for Matt laid out pretty much all the key spots. But I'll note that when you watch this live for twenty something minutes, it never felt like they ran out of stuff. There was never a lull. There was never feeling like they were just going overkill. It felt like they had the perfect amount of stuff for this match, which I think is really hard for these kind of matches. That really impressed me. Uh, that 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 shooting star press at the end, after all they had done, that was a perfect way to finish the match because it was off the ladder, the shooting star off the ladder. Because it was so impressive because, one, the ladder was kind of warped. It was a super tall ladder and kind of swaying a lot earlier. And... Not only does Paul London hit the shooting star press, but Michael Shane is basically laying on the mat, touching the base of the ladder. Like, Paul London had to do a super tight rotation and not catch the ladder. Because he had such a tight little space he could do to hit this perfectly, and he hit it perfectly. And to me, I thought that was so impressive. Like... Watching this match, every Paul London match in Ring of Honor so far that he's gotten any amount of time on, you, you've seen how just impressive this guy is athletically. This match, again, three or four just spots that are still wow spots all these years later as someone who watches the craziest high spot matches in 2017. If this match happened like right now on an indie show, it would get the same reaction that it got it in 2002. Would. Match of the year chance, probably five star match chance. Like you know, people would be buzzing about it. It would like literally, and none of it would have to be different. They wouldn't have to do anything differently to get that reaction. Mm-hmm. And I will. I, I do think we have to. I have to give some credit to Michael Shane because Paul London was the star of this match. But Michael Shane took just as much as Paul London. You know, even though Paul London has the has the rep for being the crazy guy. You know, Shane was the one who went through the table. Shane took ladder bumps too. Shane is the one, as you mentioned, who has the an insane blame job. Earlier in our series, I put out a match, I think it was against Spanky, where Michael Shane had a little tiny trickle blade job that quickly closed up. That's not what he has here. All of a sudden, he comes up at one point, and his entire forehead is covered in what I can only describe as a bandana of blood. It looks like he's wearing a band. It's so even and so thick. It it looks like he's Axl Rose, but with blood wearing a bandana. And 
I don't know if it ever got into his eyes, but later on there's a cut, and he has a bunch of dried blood like right under his eyes. So it's a testament to him that he did a bunch of complicated, dangerous stuff with that much blood getting all over around his eyes. I, you know, credit to him. He was willing to take big spots here, and this match just, might be one of the, this might, match might be the best singles match of his career. It it might be. I mean, we'd have to get someone who's like, I would probably a TNA expert like a Garrett Kidney who writes for Voices of Wrestling. If we talked to him, he would probably be able to point us to a good Michael Shane match somewhere else when he was, uh, Matt. I forget it. What was his name in TNA? Well, he was Michael Shane for a while, and then he became his, real, his real name, Matt Bentley. Yeah, but I, if this isn't his, if this isn't his best match, I want to see what his best match is because this was, is a great match. Yeah, he was in the first Ultimate Ultimate X match, which was also really good. But as far as just like a singles match, I can't think of a better one. And it, the other big note would be that that reaction that Matt mentioned. I would say this is either the biggest or second biggest reaction a match has gotten in Ring of Honor thus far. The only thing that could rival it, I would say, would be the reaction American Dragon and Loki got on the Round Robin Challenge at the end of their match. You get that same kind of five-star match of the year chance, people standing up in the final minute or two, standing ovation. And what I think is really cool about this reaction is... There's a lot of matches where it's a match people are expecting to be amazing and it lives up to the hype. And while I think people were already liking Paul London and they probably thought the match was going to be at least good, I think this is one of those matches where they build something out of nothing during the match. You know, the, the crowd, the reaction they get at the end is not something, it's something they had to earn move by move in this match. It, it's, not, it's not something they were carrying a bunch of goodwill into. Maybe a tiny bit of goodwill. And they made this really special moment for themselves just through this match. I agree with that. And also just, you know, they never had a chance to have a big match before. You know, they walked into the company as mid-carders. And this is the first time where you really saw two guys become elevated to the top tier. Um, and it it certainly was effective. And it's crazy to think this match was not scheduled to happen. I mean, maybe Gabe had it as an idea down the road, but for this show, this match with you know Paul London was supposed to be part of the tag tournament with Spanky. So if it was not for that, and this is easily spoiler. There's one match to go. This is easily, in my opinion, the best match on the show and, uh, and the selling point for the show. It made the show this match. Yeah, and it, it would not have happened. If not for Spanky having to stay in zero one, agreed. So this show might be looked at a lot differently if not for that. And I'll note the reaction continues. I think the reaction really added because it continues afterwards. Paul London, if he's not crying, he's almost crying. He looks very emotional. Michael Shane shakes his hand, and I have to admit this got me. I thought, oh, Michael Shane's breaking character because that's how special this moment is. And then he attacks Paul London. I've seen this. The- I've seen this match enough that I that I knew what was going to happen. But I, I liked it because you know in ROH, you know this was they were still in the era where they milked that whole we love each other after we have a good match together stuff. So this is the first time they sort of subverted that completely. I mean, like Daniels sort of did didn't do the handshake, but you didn't have the full like heel like I'm going to attack you right now after our great match. Um, 
live reports at the time, at least according to the ones Dave Meltzer got sent, he says a lot of people didn't like Shane attacking London after the match, figuring it almost spoiled the aura of the match. I don't agree with that. And I don't think that I don't think the crowd like the crowd boos. I'm sure a few people didn't like it, but I don't think it ruined the aura of the match. They it's still very. They booed him because he was being a bad guy. Yeah, you know, because they wanted that real emotional moment, you know. And I think it's really hard to get, especially Ring of Honor fans, to kind of suspend their disbelief. And I think we were starting to see a real emotional moment, and that's what made it perfect. Is that it goes right back into the wrestling and it catches you as by surprise because you, you are kind of getting caught up in it, and it, that makes. But actually, that leads me right into one of my favorite, just like Matt has the J Driller kickout count. One of my favorite reoccurring segments, which is Dave Meltzer praises a Ring of Honor match and finds a way to then also kind of <laughs> dismiss it, which is here's the segment. This is Dave's quote. Paul London versus Michael Shane ladder match was incredible. Fans were chanting five stars and match of the year. The guys worked hard and laid out a fantastic series of spots, but the match was nowhere near the polish of Guerrero Edge, even if it was in some ways more spectacular. The selling also isn't at that level. The move where London ran up the ladder that was on the turnbuckles and dove off with a flip dive to the crowd was incredible. London who the funks are really high on, is the real deal and will make his name to anyone who sees a tape of this match. It's worth going out of your way to see. So again, another classic example of Dave super hard praising a match and then in the middle of it having to say, well, not as good as this WWE match. Yeah, and by the way, I don't even, like, you know, that Edge match, obviously, Eddie is great, but I don't think Edge at this point was better at selling than Paul London. Like... Uh, Eddie Guerrero obviously is one of the best wrestlers who ever lived, but I, I don't. Edge's selling as a face in 2002, I don't think it was anything so special. And London's selling was really good. Yeah, and I think in this match in particular, other than like you mentioned that one spot where London comes off the top and it looks almost like he was hoping that Shane would catch him with a power bomb or something, and so he didn't really attempt to even do a move. Other than that ugly spot. These guys did a lot of really difficult, crazy things, and it's not like they did them bad at all. They pulled everything off. So in terms of polish, I don't know. I I didn't look at this and think, oh, this is so indie. Yeah, I mean, Dave always had a thing about polish. I I remember in, um, in like, 2000-ish, when, like, people would get mad at, like, when Dave would make fun of the... uh, DVD VR 500 for um, not having Triple H high enough, and he'd be like, oh, Triple H has more polish than a lot of these guys. And like Dave just has this thing about polish where I, I just, I sometimes just can't see what he's talking about, honestly. And I've watched yeah. a lot of wrestling in my life, you know, like I'm not like an idiot. I just can't see what he's talking about some of the time. I would argue one of the, I mean, not that he didn't do a botch occasionally, including in this match, but I would argue one of the high points of Paul London in this early run is how smooth he makes stuff look, you know, his polish is one of the things on his side, you know, how many people could do that moonsault drop kick, you know, and that was just a spur of the moment thing. I I just, yeah, I think it's probably less the, like the polish of the moves themselves versus like the polish of like the transitions and the, uh, and the way they snap off. But even that, I think, I don't think it's quite what Dave says it is. Again, I, I thought these guys put just the right amount of stuff into this match, spaced it out. Uh, that spot you mentioned earlier, too, where 
uh, Shane is holding a chair and he's, he just picked it up on the outside. He's holding it above his head and London does a dive on top of him while he's holding the chair above him. I mean, that could have gone wrong in three or four different ways. Just another crazy spot that went off beautifully. But Dave wrote in the observer that this match ended, apparently ended up going 15 minutes long because of the emotional reaction. 15 minutes. Yeah. Either they cut something or this is another Gabe excuse to Dave, why the show went long. Cause people were complaining the show went long because There's no way they edited this match. That's that, that, that didn't happen. Yeah. The, I, I'm, they did obviously have a clear, loud reaction after the match. I don't know if they edited it. It doesn't feel like they edited 12 minutes of this reaction off. Yeah. But, yeah, great match. And much like a few of the matches we've reviewed on these early shows, this is a match you can see completely for free, legally, via ROH's official YouTube account. You miss maybe a tiny bit of the post-match reaction, but the whole match is there for free. You know, ROH is giving it to you. If you want to see this, and you should, you haven't seen this before, go out of your way to see this match. Agreed. So, um, we cut back to the ROH Fan Fest again that took place before the show. Donovan Morgan, Michael Moss is at ringside doing stuff with fans. Donovan Morgan calls Mike Moniston to the ring. And Donovan Morgan is basically is there to give... Modest the four one one. He's saying, "Hey, just gonna let you know, man. The Club Honor's a crap. You know, blah blah blah." Modest basically is like, "Hey, that's a cool story, but I gotta find my own way." Morgan gets really pissed off and kind of goes into their history, saying, "You know, you ne- you never listened to me, even though I'm your student. You should listen to me sometimes." They get into a fight and come to blows. Morgan slinks away, and that's basically the whole segment. Yep. Uh, they seem to get really... Like, like It's like with the FBI. They seem to get really... like They go from just being kind of annoyed to like hating each other. And it, it's worth noting for people that don't know their background, Donovan Morgan and Mike Modest were tag... Modest apparently was the trainer of Donovan Morgan. They were tag partners in Pro Wrestling Noah at this time. They ran a wrestling school called Pro Wrestling Iron together. So they are... It, I did kind of enjoy that during the show on commentary and in during this promo, they are kind of acknowledging the history that these two have, which is pretty rich and has nothing to do with ring of honor. So I like that they brought that in a bit, but unfortunately this is Michael Moss only show. So they won't really get to use that. Yep. But that leads us to the final match of the show and the final match of the ring of honor tag title tournament for the title. The Prophecy, Christopher Daniels and Donovan Morgan beat American Dragon and Mike Modest in 26 minutes, 40 seconds, when Modest pins American Dragon after the last rites. Where are you getting that time from? Because I know for a fact it wasn't that long on the DVD. I was about to say, this match, um, the Observer says it was 2640, and they were getting official times. Different Wikipedia sites say it was 2640, so... I was about to go into, we have two options, like I think cage match or something says 2640. So we have two options here. We can believe that the observer got the wrong time and everyone on the internet is taking that. Or we can say that they cut 10 minutes out of this match because I looked it up. I looked like when I was watching it, I made sure to time it out because it didn't seem like it was going to be that long. And it was about 16 minutes, I think. So either they cut 10 out, which I guess is possible because... 
the sh- the show ended right around three hours, which was kind of the limit for VHS tapes and where all the shows were ending. Or maybe it really was a 16-minute match. I It just feels to me like they wouldn't give that match that much time. Because it didn't really build to anything so incredible. But I could be wrong. But it was also the main event, so I'm not sure. Also, Matt, did you notice a lot of people leaving during this match or something? I wasn't really paying much attention to the crowd. Because I'll note something that was from the live reports. Dave wrote, maybe 200... Remember, this show was a 400-person attendance. So remember that when Dave writes... Maybe 250 people there were there for the end of the show, which was at 11.45 p.m. for a show that started at 7.30 p.m. They had a fan fest earlier that started at 6.15 p.m. Many different reports thought the show should have less matches and less wrestlers, but that it's hard to say anything negative about a group that always delivers an excellent show. While every report said it was great, virtually every report also said far too many people were on the show and complained of overbooking angles. And Dave went on to write that in hindsight, the people in Ring of Honor admitted that they should have changed the order of the final two matches. But I don't know if a hundred, if I noticed 150 people left for the main event. I did notice at, as soon as the main event ended, while they were sh- still shooting an angle, I noticed there were some people that were getting up and leaving in that sense. Yeah, so, I thought a lot of people I noticed leaving right after the match ended. But no, I did not notice that like during the match. No, I think yeah. people, wait, people waited till the pin was counted. So I don't know if those reports were just exaggerating or we were missing people on a certain side, but I definitely did get the vibe of people going like, as soon as the match ended, I don't care what else is happening. I got to get out of here. It's almost midnight. Yeah. But, um, and this match was a victim of card placement, I think, because it does not get the reaction I think it deserves. I don't think it's a great match. I think it's a good match, but... The crowd is clearly exhausted. They're not completely silent, but even Gabe on commentary acknowledges, you know, that the crowd is exhausted after London and Shane, and this match has to directly follow it. Um, they do work a fast-paced match, lots of action. Which is, uh, which is another reason why I don't think it was 26 minutes. Yeah, I'll say if, if they cut out 10 minutes of this match, they must have cut out all of the slow-paced build because I can't imagine them working a match at this pace for another 10 minutes. Actually, that, that makes sense because I do remember actually watching the first spot of the match and they were going for a test of strength. And I was like, you know, now that I think about it, that's not usually how they start a match. Yeah. So maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe they did cut out like the opening 10 like feeling out process. That actually it, makes some sense. On the off, ch- I know we have some people like Joe Gagne who have been at shows, but not the Philly shows. I don't think. But if we have anyone who was at the show, if you have any idea, Green Lantern fan, if you're listening, <laughs> was this show twenty six forty? I mean, was this match twenty six forty or not? I think we're honestly because I honestly watching this, I was looking for the cuts. I can't tell if there's cuts or not. I can't see them. If anybody, I'm not there if, isn't. if anybody remembers what this match was was like live, they have a very good memory. Yeah, if you can remember if there's an extra 10 minutes to this match. But um, good match, not a ton of story to it. I thought American Dragon had a great selling performance here. He sells his leg, and he does a couple really cool things where at one point he does a tope, a tope to the outside, and when he lands and his leg hits the ground as it would on a tope, he sells it, which I think a lot of guys wouldn't do that. Later, when he does the cannon mutilation, he holds his injured leg off the mat so it doesn't touch. 
And I almost thought I wrote, this is a selling performance too good for this match because most of the time it doesn't prevent him from doing anything. They don't really focus on it to get a win, but it's just a really, he sells his leg really well, even though it's kind of more of an action-oriented, just work-to-big-moves match. But overall, good match. I actually really like Michael Modis's work tonight. I think he came off as kind of an ass kicker, but compared to Donovan Morgan, he was also a bit flashier and had more personality. He even did something like, uh, I think he did a headstand Rana where a guy was in the corner and he basically just did a headstand and did a Rana out of it. Yeah. Like he, he, like he put his hands like on the, on the two ropes to do it. Right. Yeah. Like, 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 like well, Trish Stratus did stuff like that. Right. I, I think so, yeah. He, he can't, comes off as basically kind of a shorter Donovan Morgan where they're both kind of bulky, technically proficient, angry, growly white dudes. But Michael Moss just seems like he has a bit more personality and flashiness to him. Yeah, he's a character. He's a character of a guy, whereas Morgan, yeah. Morgan is not. <laughs> he's a giant 80-year-old midget, yeah. as you would say. But... Um, I, I wish we could have seen more of Michael Modest in Ring of Honor. Not that, I mean, not that Donovan Morgan's horrible, but I think if I had to pick between one of them from the show, I would have picked Michael Modest. But good match. I think the one big one flaw in it, it, it kind of the flaw isn't the flaw in the context of the match, but in the context of the show, it is. And what what it is is the end of this match is um, American Dragons going up to hit his big back superplex on Chris Daniels. And Donovan Morgan goes and grabs one of Dragon's legs, which causes, allows Daniels to fall on top of, of Dragon for a big near fall. And then almost immediately, Daniels hits one or two big spots, like the last rights, and the match is over. And what I didn't like about this was, it was kind of heelish, but in the context of a big spotty tag match where everyone's jumping in at the end. It didn't feel like that big of a cheating spot. And then after the match, dragon and modest freak out. They get mad. There was, there's a giant tag trophy. They didn't have titles at this point for the tag winners and modest and, and dragon break it. Dragon takes the topper that broke off of the trophy and puts it down his trunks, which makes him look like he has a weird erection. And um, he even gave it one point on yeah, commentary. He actually, he actually did have a weird erection. <laughs> it just accentuated it. Yeah. But Gabe at one point, even when Mazd is grabbing the trophy, Gabe even is just says, like, understatedly, you, you don't have, that's not your trophy. Like, it was weird where it felt like they were doing a baby face kind of finish to the show to send the crowd happy, but it didn't feel like they were faces. It felt like they were being like angry jerks. They only wrestled two matches. The prophecy wrestled three. They didn't really cheat that much. And now you're having a temper tantrum and breaking this trophy. Yeah, I will say you're right, but that is in the grand tradition of wrestling baby faces to be sore losers. Don't you think that's, it's definitely a Bret Hart at the end of the WrestleMania two battle Royal with bad news Brown moment where Technically, Bad News Brown didn't do anything wrong, but Bret Hart's still throwing a hissy fit and getting cheered for it. If so. Jesse Ventura was on commentary, he would really uh, explain that the baby faces were actually being the assholes here, because he was very <laughs> good at that. Mm. I would love a Gabe Sapolsky-Jesse Ventura 
commentary team. Uh, Matt, what did you think about this match? Uh, I didn't, I mean, you know, I didn't think much of it. It was just, after everything, it was good. Like, you know, it's all good wrestlers and they do good stuff, but it was, it was, I thought it was still dull. You know, there was good selling, but the, the, the crowd heat was lacking because they were so tired. And I don't think it really built to that much. And, you know, I thought, whereas the, the kind of match that the Prophecy worked in the second round with Hadaka and Togo, that felt more like it would have been a worthy final to me, where, like, they really built to these near falls and stuff. That's what you want, right, when you, go to, when you get to the finals of a tournament with something that feels a little more dramatic. I don't think this match ever got dramatic. You know, Morgan was still good uh, doing his, uh, his forearms and knocking the shit out of people. Uh, and, um, you know, Dragon did a good job selling the leg. The announcers were getting really mad at... Um, oh, th- did I say Morgan was good? I meant Modest was good with the <laughs> forearms. Um, their names are both six letters, and they both start with M-O. Um, yeah, I have to keep checking myself, too. I- I'm, I'm glad that this is Mike Modest's last show for that reason. <laughs> Yeah, and um, but they were they were the announcers were getting mad at Morgan for constantly uh, knocking over the barricades, the guardrails. But I actually oh, thought that was great. But I actually think that London does it a lot more than than Morgan does. I don't know. Morgan did it like three or four times on this show alone, and I noticed he did it in the other show. I forgot to mention that that's one of the best points of commentary is during like at least two, if not three, of Morgan's matches tonight. You can tell like they're joking about it, but you can tell Gabe and J- Doug aren't happy. Especially, yeah, Mor- especially Gabe. Yeah, it, it, that Morgan is constantly in all his matches throwing people in the guardrails because the guardrails are real flimsy, and you can see like the wire mesh tearing away from the frame almost every time and Gabe keeps talking about how like how much this is costing Ring of Honor and you can tell this is real this is not him joking like he's trying to make it seem like he's being lighthearted but you could tell that this is actually annoying him <laughs> yeah I, I think it's hard to ask wrestlers to not throw people into guardrails in 2002 I just don't think that's realistic yeah but well, yeah, other, like- other than that that's pretty much all I have to say about the match honestly yeah, um, it's. I, I probably liked it a little bit more to do, but again, good and nothing more. And considering the talent involved, that's kind of disappointing. And that it was the main event. I guess it's interesting, as we mentioned before, that the Ring of Honor announced even afterwards that, yeah, we should have switched the 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 final two matches. We should should have switched them around. It's kind of interesting in the sense of, on the first show, you and I praised Ring of Honor for having the faith in Key and Dragon and Daniels to main event above Eddie Guerrero and Super Crazy. And on this show, they kind of, maybe they had that same choice to a lesser degree again, and they made the wrong move. Like, even on paper, you would say, it's going to be pretty hard to to follow what was basically a TLC match, but they didn't quite have the gumption to pull that trigger and put that as the main event. Well, and but if, it if kind this, of bit them in the bat, in the in the butt. Although, if this match really was twenty six minutes, they might have been better off saving, like you know, having the London match on before it, just for the sake of that match. Yeah, in that sense, yeah, that that might have been a blessing in disguise. But in terms of what you would put on last to send the crowd home, I mean, that match even had the happy ending. You wouldn't have had to have the trophy temper tantrum because. Paul London and Michael Shane ends with London winning clean, you know? Yep. Even if Shane attacks him afterwards, it's still a big happy ending. So, um, yeah, good, not great, disappointing way to end the show. Backstage, we get a, our final segment to end the show where 
the prophecy is celebrating with their title and their trophy because Xavier's the the prophecy have all the I don't know gold they have all the metal <laughs> in Ring of Honor right now and yeah the gold the silver they have the, the aluminum and they're all celebrating simply luscious is there too recovering from whatever Trinity was doing to her for the last two hours um. Daniel has kind of a funny crack where he goes, why'd they give us a trophy anyway? Why do they have to be Japanese? Why don't they just give us belts? So I kind of like that. Yeah. He's kind of giving it to Ring of Honor. I don't know if Ring of Honor just didn't have the time to get belts made. That would, If that was the case, that's certainly not the only time in wrestling history where a company didn't announce belts and then realized it takes like sometimes two months to get a good professional belt made. Yeah. But... Daniel says he's going to get Xavier a tune-up match on the next show against the biggest loser in Ring of Honor. Mark Briscoe just happens to be nearby. He overhears them and says that his brother is the biggest loser in Ring <laughs> of Honor, Dan- which is kind of a cute little yeah, I, way I, to script. I like that a lot. Yeah. Daniels agrees and says it'll be Jay versus Xavier at the next Ring of Honor show, non-title. I did think that was a little weird because Daniels should know that Jay b- just beat Red, and if we're doing our MMA math, Amazing Red beat Xavier at Road to the Title, so maybe you shouldn't be so eager to have Jay face him, but maybe you should, if you want the biggest loser, maybe uh, an Elax, or a Dunn or Marcos, or a member of the Christopher Street Connection, but it was still a very cute way to get into this match, and then Daniels also sets up a Dick Togo versus Doug Williams match where the winner would face Daniels with the stip being that if Daniels wins, they could never shake hands again. Um, this, this match would never happen because Dick Togo would get hurt in the next week or two before the next show. And then finally, I guess the only other thing that, that I'm going to me- mention from this segment that ends the show is how concerned Donovan Morgan was about the trophy. Because Donovan Morgan, at first during the segment, is like, oh, I know this trophy place. We can get this trophy fixed. <laughs> and then later he goes, we can't defend the trophy until it's fixed. Like, <laughs> Donovan Morgan was very concerned about this trophy. And who I could, thought who, that was cute. Yeah, who could blame him? It's a- that, that's the most personality he's shown so far in Ring of Honor, is his love of trophies. <laughs> if they had turned that into a character, that would have been money, but Alas. Hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I forgot, and there is a lot of trophy-related segments on the upcoming events. We'll see. We shall see. Matt, anything else to say about this segment, which ends the show? Uh, No. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of another show, another Ring of Honor show, another episode of Through the Years. And overall, I would say this show was... It was average. It was it was a little different in some ways. It was a little bit the same in other ways, like the bloat of it. I think, personally, I got to give it the same recommendation I gave the last, not not Honor Invades Boston, but um, Crowning a Champion, which is the one must-see match on this is for free on Ring of Honor's YouTube account. So in good conscience, even though there's stuff on this show that is also good apart from that, I can't tell you to go buy this show or watch this whole show when you can see the best match for free on YouTube right now. Agreed. Um, 
honestly, there are very few shows from 2002 where I'd be like, yeah, you have to watch this from beginning to end. Um, but especially when like there's one really great match and it's free, just watch that match. Yeah, it makes it super easy to kind of just pass the buck on this. So yeah. Ring of Honor hurting eBay sales of their DVDs with the help of our podcast by uploading some of their best early matches to YouTube. But beyond, but, the, but beyond the recommendation aspect, just as like an analyzing the show critically, it got a lot of like really bad reviews over the years. It was historically considered a mess. And it honestly didn't seem that much worse to me than a lot of the other ROH shows. You know, it certainly wasn't a good show from top to bottom, but I didn't think it was bad. You know, there was some bad stuff, but there was some good stuff, and there was one really great match, which is, seems to be pretty par for the course for a lot of these ROH shows. So I thought it, was, it wasn't it was terrible. It was okay. D- my question to you, though, is did it feel like the beginning of a new era to you? Because we were That's, talking a lot about that. Um, I feel like in parts it felt, but not completely. Uh, like, going back, I would say... Like two thirds of it felt very much like the some other Ring of Honor shows, but then you did have elements. I mean, you, you're you're getting the extra title in, and you're ending the show with the heel team celebrating triumphantly. You're getting the different kind of opening, which would very rarely happen. You're getting the new announced team, which is dramatically changing how we're going to see the shows because it's just not as distracting. Yeah, and even just CM Punk. CM Punk or even Paul London making himself a star. I feel like he's the first star that was created in Ring of Honor. Yep. And this is kind of his crowning. This is where he gets anointed as that guy. And so all those moments kind of do feel like the, a new era is starting. But then you also have just Christopher Street connection things that feel like every other show. And just bl- random short matches, you know, with Alex Arion or still six and seven minute undercard matches that are just all right. So there are parts of it that feel of the old era as well. Like, how do you feel about that? I pretty much exactly agree with what you said. Like, it's like, it's a mix. Like the, the new era is slowly creeping in. Um, and, you know, I feel like when there, there are certain things that just have to, sort of slide away for it to fully be established. Like, nothing against them, but I feel like the continued presence of the FBI like makes it still feel like the old era. The continued presence of Nana as a wrestler. I feel like once... Like, you know, when he, st- when he goes away for a while and becomes more of the manager character, you start to, you know, you start to go more toward the ROHs that I more remember from the golden era. And even eventually, we're hopefully going to reach a critical mass soon where there's just so many good guys on each show. You know, Punk's coming in soon. Joe will be debuting on the next show. And just, you know, London is now basically made as a big name in the company. We're getting to the point where, as opposed to the first show or two, where it felt like there was Key, Daniels, and Dragon on one level. And then there were some talented prospects on the undercard, but it was like a dramatic step down. We're getting to the point where, especially when also once Homicide gets a singles push, there's going to be too many guys to feel like you're just having three at the top. Agreed. It's going to become undeniable. So that brings us to the end of the show. Next time, we will be reviewing Glory by Honor, which will have Doug Williams versus Christopher Daniels. We'll have... Um, 
uh, three-way for the rights to the showstopper name. Michael Shane versus Paul London versus Spanky. We will have Steve Carino's in-ring Ring of Honor debut against Rudy Boy Gonzalez. And we'll have some random guy named Samoa Joe's wrestling some schlub named Loki. Uh, that'll probably be average or something. And for anyone that wants to contact us, through the years at gmail.com you can email us remember that's through spelled with t-h-r-o-h you can contact me on twitter at trevor dane contact matt at mayor mgf we post i check posts on our threads at the pro wrestling only message board on figure four and on voices of wrestling support the cubsfan.com because it's a good website place to be nation thank you again for giving us our home and matt Anything else to say? No. Uh, thank you for listening. It's uh, it's good to be back, although I guess you weren't gone for that long. And um, we will see you very soon. We'll see you. Bye. <laughs>